Hey, Tim. Yeah, what's up, guy? Hey, I wanted to have a dialogue with you real quick about oh. potential spoilers that may be in this particular episode. It may not what? be, too, but we're blabbermouths, so who knows what we're going to do. Exactly. You are a blabbermouth! Only you 70 and plus people <laughs> will get that reference to the honeymooners. But, uh, all right then. All right. On with the show, blabbermouth. <laughs> This is Sensen Control Room. Stand by. Dialogue rather oddly, Tim. Yeah, I'd say it's kind of quick and fast, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, welcome to another edition of Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Thank you for that new theme song that we'll play <laughs> on every episode the rest of the next three seasons. <laughs> Copyright. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm. my name is Timothy. Mm-hmm. I'm Derek Athey, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, I think for the sake of... Not to confuse everyone. Well, or, you know, just formalities. We'll drop the formalities, and I'm, I'll just be Tim, and you'll just be Derek. Yeah, okay. All right. Bossy. So, listen here, see? <laughs> well, hello. What do you hear? What do you say? We're going to talk about uh, uh, dialogue in films. And, mm. uh, yeah, don't go to sleep. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wake me up before you go, go, leave me hanging on the light, yo, yo, wake me up. So here's the deal. Sit down. Take a seat Sit next down. to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pull up a Grab chair. Grab a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Pull up a chair. Two. You want one lump or two on your coffee? Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, the evolution of dialogue and film and all of this garbage and bananas. And um, <laughs> it basically kind of started in what was it 1927 when the first talkie came out so right first american talkie the, apparently nope. the germans were way ahead of us on this oh really who would have thought <laughs> god damn it them and their rocket These ships smart motherfuckers over there that's why we hired all the nazis that's to right. run nasa <laughs> <laughs> sorry mr president Nuclear reactors could provide power almost indefinitely. Had to get to the moon first before the goddamn Ruskies. <laughs> so get those Nazis on the payroll. But that one's just hard facts, man. Yeah, no. Uh, before all of this, though, how did we communicate through film? Well, I mean, it was mostly punctu... I mean, it's obviously all visual, and right. then it's punctuated with music, and then they would do those little uh, dialogue cards. Right. Like, break to cut to the dialogue cards. Right. So, and it would be pretty brief, like, 
I love you or ouch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin are one of the biggest people around when silent films are out there. Yeah. So Buster Keaton's known as uh, Old Stoneface. Right. And uh, of course, Charlie Chaplin, he, his the Tramp character is a huge phenomenon back then. Both of these guys raking in money. And then, of course, when this whole contraption of, hey, why don't we put talking into movies? Everyone right. thinks it's going to be the end of movies as we know it. No one's going to like it. Even one of the kings of uh, the visual medium of movies, Alfred Hitchcock, was working in silent films at there. And this, this guy... Alfred Hitchcock Good evening. crosses so many genres just on what the topic that we're talking about right now, just because yeah. he starts out in silent film. He does a silent film version of The Lodger. And then radio becomes a big thing, so he ends up being the first to do a uh, episode of this radio show called Suspense. Mm-hmm. This is Hollywood and CBS presenting forecast number four. Herbert Marshall, directed by Alfred Hitchcock in the first program of a proposed new series entitled Suspense. And he gets to remake The Lodger, but completely audio version. So he does an yeah, all without visual any version, visual. <laughs> right. And then he does the exact flip-flop, which is brilliant, right. I think. That's a, a yeah. really cool way for him to get visual and audio style of this medium. And then, yeah, because once he gets to talkie movies, he's kind of like mastered both right. the audio only and the visual only. And right. Then he can, yeah, that's kind of cool. It's amazing, right? And, and then he's, but this guy, Alfred Hitchcock, that we know as a visual genius, as right. far as cinema goes, he's one of the people that's pushing back on talkie. He's like, this is going to ruin the industry. It's <laughs> right. one of the worst things we can do because watching people talk is the most boring thing you can do. You right. can't make it right. visually interesting. <laughs> right. Well, and um, it kind of mirrors what we're going through right now with the whole theater, movie theater versus streaming at home thing. You know? Yeah. How it's it's ruining the industry and all that stuff, but right. just kind of like a modern parallel to what we're dealing with now. But um, but as we know, because we are talking about movies and it's 2022, mm-hmm. it didn't. It talkies did not ruin the medium. No, no. <laughs> but it, it, one of the funny things too, just sticking into the silent film real quick, is that Chaplin was of course very nervous about giving the tramp a voice because the tramp's voice is whatever you hear in your head out there he wanted it very much to be in people's imagination yep and so you have that worry for him and then if anyone's ever heard (laughs) the actual voice of buster keaton you could understand why he was trepidatious about talking because (laughs) his voice is very gravelly and it's not a very presentable voice no your lips moved you spoke and in the cutting room, you'd simply run the film through your fingers down to where you just got your mouth open, and on the second syllable, you'd cut. Slap in your subtitle, it's explained what you're talking about, and then when you come back, you pick it up just as your mouth is about to close. Those stars start to fall in Hollywood, and back then, of course, if you're not a studio actor, you're out of there, bub. You know, you're not getting any money or anything right, like right. That. So dialogue becomes this, like, make it or break it after, I mean, once people embrace it, you have people like like this millionaire uh, kid who goes and makes Hell's Angels, Howard Hughes. Uh-huh. Howard Hughes, yeah. He makes it all in silent film and then sees the jazz singer and says, This is what the people want. Silent pictures are yesterday's news, so I figure we got to reshoot Hell's Angels for sound. How much of it? All of it. Before you even ask, I'll tell you, an additional 1.7 million. We got that much? 
No. Well, we'll make it. Take care of that, would you? Well, now we got to go reshoot this movie that I've just spent <laughs> the most budget I've ever spent just to reshoot it to make it a talkie because this is the wave of the future. Right, right. The way of the future. <clears throat> the way of the future. The way of the future. And so, so much money is being put into this industry at this time and this thing that everyone's for some reason unsure of and understandably so that when we finally get into silent film, you can see how... You mean talking film? Or talkie films, yeah. Once we get into talkie films at this time, it's it, you can see Hollywood's trepidatious about embracing it too much because everyone who has done anything where you incorporate dialogue is all theater. And when you get in and you're putting a camera on these people, these people who are trained to be theater actors are still projecting loud. Yeah. And it comes off as very annoying. <laughs> right, right. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Well, and that, but but what does I think the saving grace for movies at the time is it's a cheap form of entertainment, and the depression hits shortly after talkies come out anyway. Right. And so, uh, peop, it's it's a way for people to kind of lose themselves in their sorrows of what the real life of right. Uh, what's going on in the world when it's famine and destitution and all right. that kind of stuff is happening everywhere. And and comparing what we know of as going to a movie now is nothing compared to what it was back then. It was an all-day affair. It wasn't just right. like we got a 3 o'clock yeah. show and a 4 o'clock show, you know? You go, you, you watch a cartoon, and then there's a short, and then there's a yeah. newsreel, and then there's another yeah. short, and then there's your feature, and then there's another right. thing at the end. Sometimes there's even live performances before and after the show. Sometimes the right. stars come and talk. It's according to where you live. Right. It was an all-day event. That's why people dress up right you go out and you're going out to the movie so yeah when the depression hits and you have to go out to these theaters at this time and they don't have the money to send out all these people to do these live shows you know vaudeville starting to take a huge fall uh-huh. because live show is getting eaten up by it's too much money to put on a live show so these movies are starting to take over all the big movie palaces correct one of the things too that i think because the jazz singer comes out it's a huge success at being one of the first american uh talkies and i think their fail safe in that that kind of helped them was that it was a musical too. Right. So right. they knew that if the talking bored the people in it, they could stuff enough music in it that that would entertain the people who were bored by the talking. Right. And that kind of helped out a little bit. Even reviews for that film at the time was talking about how, oh, it's a long slog through the dialogue, but it has really jazzy tunes. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's yeah. probably that fear of keeping music in movies probably propels right. why musicals are such a huge thing all the way into the mid-50s, and then they start to die out because people are realizing that now it's reversed, Mm. and now music is starting to kill the dialogue scenes. The dialogue scenes are more popular than the music. Right, right. There are more of you than people realize. A special class of the American female, the married maidens. So help me, Dexter. If you say another word, I'm through, Red. For the moment, I've had my say. So, and 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 when we think of old movies and we think of stuff from the 30s and the 40s and stuff, there's this kind of weird way of people all kind of talk the same, and this almost like a British accent, but it's not totally a British accent, right? Mm. So, 
It's called the transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent, right? And there's a story behind this, and I learned this on YouTube. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. There's this really awesome uh, a dialect coach for Hollywood named Eric Singer, who does a lot of videos on YouTube. If you want to check out some of his videos, they're really interesting, especially if he, can, he doesn't just do, he'll, he'll do regions all over the world, all within the country, but he also has a short little video talking about the history of mid-Atlantic. And in that, he basically said there was a guy in the late 1800s in Australia. His name was William Tilly. And he kind of believed that in all English-speaking languages, what if we just got rid of these uh, regional dialects and accents and made everybody talk the same? Mm. And uh, so what he did is he essentially took what he thought, this is all perspective, but what he thought would be the best um, of all, uh, both the American accent and the Australian accent, obviously, and the British accent, and combine it all together and kind of make it what's, you know, like if you were born in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you have a little bit of British, a little bit of American. Mother, if I never see Mr. C.K. Dexter Haven again, I'll be... Isn't that awful? They're friends of your father's. Wouldn't you know it? What are they? And this was posed as what was called correct speech because it, it wasn't called mid-atlantic at the time it was just called correct speech okay uh, and and the idea was is is if you're going to speak english this is the way you're supposed to speak it. right and this got adopted by theater because of specifically of the term correct speech and all that uh, and um and some schools in in america actually picked this up and started teaching it okay this accent and so that's how it became a thing in the, like the late victorian going into the 20th century and um that's crazy it became a, a facet this 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 weird kind of half thing if you anybody think of um like Catherine hepburn or cary grant cary grant yeah and yeah. then a modern a modern version of this would be fraser crane from cheers and all that stuff that's right. a very mid-atlantic six months ago i was living in boston my wife had left me, which was very painful. Then she came back to me, which was excruciating. <laughs> or, or Gilligan's Island, you know, if anybody's old enough to know that show, <laughs> uh, Mr. and Mrs. Howell, Howell talked yeah. in a, yeah, they talked in a mid-Atlantic accent. And it's very distinguished and, mm -hmm. you know, it's how we think of pretentious, you know, right. today. I, Thurston Howell III, being of sound mind and body... Dr. Fast, darling. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Because this got adopted by theater, and then you were just talking about how movie actors and the talkies were basically people who came from the theater. Right. This basically, it became the accent that flooded Hollywood. And what's really interesting is, is this, this guy, Eric Singer, who's a dialect coach today for film and teaches people how to learn regional stuff. He was basically saying back in his job back in that day would be to take the regional out of the actor and make everybody talk the same in right. this mid-Atlantic way. And so um, there were no regional accents. If you were from Chicago or Boston or wherever, you know, did the Deep South, you all sounded in this kind of Catherine Hepburn kind of way. Right. You only, you only were allowed to talk like that if you're playing a hillbilly or a gangster. Right, you right. You can keep yeah. that dialogue. Shut your trap. Shut up, Ross. Smash your head flat. Go ahead. Go ahead. Throw it. If you did, you'd never leave this wilderness alive. Without me, you two would die here more miserable than rats. So, and I guess what happens is, is around, you know, the, uh, by the end of World War II, this whole concept just kind of falls out of favor. And, um, 
schools don't teach it anymore and all that stuff and uh it eventually it just kind of becomes almost a parody within itself like we were just saying a minute ago with the mr howells of right. gilgan's island and all that stuff it be kind of becomes a parody of what it is to be uh pretentious and rich in america you right. know what i mean that accent right and you know, of course you know the fraser and his brother on the show fraser or back in the day in cheers was kind of like you know he's a pretentious too right. smart for his own good kind of it's guy a bit of a send-up yeah yeah, right. The joke's not funny and the bid's not sufficient. What's also interesting about that time is, you know, we think about acting changes a lot after World War II. And in the 50s comes the method, right? Right. And and with the method in acting, it becomes as realistic a portrait as you can do. You're so far into it that you are that role, right? right. And so and so that's when accents and dialects of that are regional specific actually become more important. Right. Uh, you know what I mean? Because we're not we're going away from this old theatrical right. presentation in movies. We're we're going into this more like uh, you know uh, authentic authentic. Think of Marlon Brando and Jim, James Dean are the first two big right. method actors of the fifties. For sure. You say it's because of me. You say it's because of the neighborhood. No, you use every other phony excuse. You know that kind of sets a course. Dialogue then starts to reflect the region in which the story is taking place. Sure. And it's also like a loosening up too, because at the same, uh, the, the third thing that's happening at this time is the PCA is starting to lose its grip on stuff. It still exists. The um, right. the PCA or the Production Code Administration or the Hayes Code is kind of like starting to lose its legs. So it's like all these things are happening at the same time to change film dramatically. Right. So it changes dialogue qu quite a bit and how actors are performing right. and also what's being allowed and how expression isn't so boxed into this cute and cuddly version of 1940s or 1930s Hollywood. I should say late 1930s because right. the, the PCA doesn't really kick in until the mid 30s. Right. Some of those first talkies are actually a little more risque than, right. uh, yeah, than, than was allowed. Of course, and then, and then you're talking about even some of the early Warner Brothers gangster pictures that are, that are coming in. Like, right. Like you're saying, because these gangsters are not polished, you could look at them as kind of oafish even. Yeah, They're not right. going to have those accents that make them hoity-toity upper class. They're going to have right. the lower class part. I mean, even take comedy in this thing. Shorts start coming into uh, talkies, and they become really popular. When you have the Three Stooges, how are they talking? Squash brain, you. What are you doing? Take a duty. I'll pick at you in a minute. Go on, get gone. Go ahead. And then you go to Laurel and Hardy. How? Right. But they have that hoity-toity because they think they're upper class, but... They, yeah, but they aren't. Right. Yeah, right, right. How'd you know I was here? I saw your picture in the paper. Did you? Yeah. How'd that look? Well, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> Neither of you two. You know, if I hadn't have seen you, I never would have known you. <laughs> and that, that's it's funny to see how the system plays with that. I feel like Oliver does, but right. but Laurel doesn't. Yeah. Right. And so you see those kind of things playing off of each other, for, uh, against each other, but for comedy's sake, for entertainment's right. sake. Abbott and Costello come after that, too. Yeah. Right. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Is on third. You know the guy's oh. name's on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean, the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Why are you asking me? For? I don't know. And there are more vaudevillian performance actors that turn to film. Right. Yeah. All of those people are. Lauren Hardy yeah. and Stooges and all of them. Yeah. Yeah. So there, another thing that people talk about when they think of movies from this early time period of the 30s and 40s is is the speed sometimes a lot they're really fast and and right a guy we've talked about on our thing episode that's very 
well known for this is Howard Hawks. Mm -hmm. And um, you could almost say Aaron Sorkin is kind of like the, uh, the great grandson of, hmm. or the grandson of Howard Hawks because of that fast paced, right. no skipping a beat kind of talking thing. Very much comes from a Howard Hawks uh, film of, the, of its time. Oh, totally. Get the governor on the phone. I can't. Why not? Can't locate him. He's out fishing. How many places to fish are there? Well, at least two, the Atlantic and Pacific. All right, that simplifies it, doesn't it? Oh, Get yeah. him on the phone. And tell him what? Quiet, Duffy. He's thinking. Especially one of my first films of, of seeing uh, something Howard Hawksy just because my mom was a big fan of Cary Grant right. so I in turn became a big fan of Cary Grant was uh, His Girl Friday and if you watch that it's really especially taking in the time period into account while you're watching it not watching it from a perspective of 2022 right. but when you're watching it and you're sitting there and you're seeing how as the story goes, he's laying out exposition for you. Right. But right. he's doing it through quick dialogue to where it doesn't feel like you're getting inundated with a lot of information. You're just watching fun, quippy banter. Right, yeah. And that is a genius thing, especially in that time where there is a lot of long, drawn-out speeches of, right. you know, then I'm going to go down. You know, you got you got Bogart, who, who's awesome in a lot of stuff, and, and John Hewson is another really ingenious guy, comes in at that time and does things like uh, the Treasure of the Sierra, Sierra Madre. Madre. It right. really starts changing up how dramatic looks can be replaced with just a lot of you know mundane dialogue and stuff like that so you see right. that's one of bogart's favorite films of his that he did just because it wasn't always quippy stuff that he had to say or long exposition of how he's going to catch this guy and how he's going to lay out the trap and all of this stuff but see dobbs ain't a guy likes being taken advantage of do the mug in i say and I figure, too, in retrospect, if you're living in that time, it probably made that film feel a little more realistic compared to other films. You know right. what I mean? Even though in our age we look at it and think it's weird and awkward right. and slow paced, but in, 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 amongst its contemporaries, it's kind of cutting edge. Right. No, for yeah. sure. And, and so when you're, when you're seeing those kind of things, and even like if you stay on John Huston and you go all the way up to African Queen, that's yeah. a, a character unlike anything Bogart had ever played before. If you right. watch that film and you see the way he delivers dialogue and stuff, he's a kind of a beaten man. You right. know, he's dealing with, as you were just talking about that accent from Catherine Hepburn, she's bringing right. that really heavily because she's supposed to be like a more rich, intelligent. Yeah. Right. And she's uh, supposed yeah. to be, yeah, upper class. And right. 2,000 cigarettes, two cases of gin. <laughs> we could stay here for months if we wanted to. It's not a bad place to sit out of war in it, a mess. All the comforts of home, including running water. We simply can't remain here in this backwater until the war is over, Mr. Allnut. Can't we, miss? You got the map. Show me a way out and I'll take it. That's kind of like the mismatched love about the whole thing. Is right. He's a downtrodden loser and she's an upper-class woman. Yeah, right. Right. And so a lot of the, the people of the time, when, like you were saying, it does when audiences go see it because they're used to all of that really slow, laid out, mundane exposition and, and dialogue that when they're seeing this quippy banter, yeah. it probably feels like, oh, wow, this is a cool kind of, I like this, it's a little more peppy and it's moving along. Right, I think it almost kind of becomes a trend in a way. Right. Yeah. Well, everybody starts copying it. Like everything does. Like <laughs> right, yeah, right, right, it, yeah. It, it's, it's new and inventive, and then becomes like, oh, it's, look, it's more CGI. Yeah, <laughs> or 3D again. Mm. <laughs> yeah. On Friday, August 13th, an all-new three-dimensional process will put you in the picture, whether you want to be there or not. Ah! Friday the 13th, Part 3 in Super 3D. The other thing, too, like we were talking about, I mean, we got to, bring it back to this uh, uh, with that 
transfer of all you know there is no such thing as film actors prior to this generation right so all of the film actors that are thrust onto the scene in this early era of film are theater actors so there's a lot of like you said grandiose mm-hmm. overacting in a way you know and it was, you know in in silent film too because there is no dialogue they kind of they tend to be uh, very exaggerated and theatrical too right because you can't hear anything so they're trying to express with their movement and um yes, i'm mad right <laughs> i'm happy yeah <laughs> right so in a lot of the mainstream and not edge pushing type films of the 30s and 40s a lot of these actors are very you know they're over actors in a way oh, they're yeah. ta- they're talking very loud right. because they they feel like they have to project to the back of the audience even though they're on a film set right and and they're making probably slightly larger than needed head movements and all that there's no subtlety in right. what they're doing right no. yeah yeah and you're you're watching someone new in a craft try to figure out what kind of craft they're a part of <laughs> right yeah and as it grows one of the perfect people I, I say of this time, if you watch their early movies and you watch them progress on through their years, you yeah. watch Jimmy Stewart early movies, and he's yeah. very what you're saying. He's yeah. kind of all over the place and very animated, big and animated, yeah, right. and loud and for scenes that you don't really need to be loud about. But but he's projecting. Get up there with that lady that's up on top of this Capitol dome. That lady that stands for liberty. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. But if you watch his subtleties as it goes through, even you get all the way up into the 60s when he does Rear Window, he's very right. slight little smiles. I mean, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with how the script written, how Hitchcock is so meticulous about everything. Right. That when he delivers a line, it can right. be under his breath. You can barely right. hear it maybe because you're supposed to hear something else at the time he delivers that. Uh-huh. But it's, uh, and it's great because you see that actor embracing his craft of everything he's learned over the years, what worked, what didn't work, and what's working with the times now. Yeah. Oh, and that's where you're not being clever. A murderer would never parade his crime in front of an open window. Why not? Why, for all you know, there's probably something a lot more sinister going on behind those windows. Where? Oh. No comment. And then you see other actors at the same time that come from the same era that are still all over the place and goofy. And well, but if you want to stick with Hitchcock, you can think of uh, Cary Grant as well. Oh, yeah. He was a very animated, a very comedic yeah. kind of physical performer. And then by the time you get to like North by Northwest, he's oh, definitely man. a much more measured performance, right? Yeah. I know. I look vaguely familiar. Yes. You feel you've seen me somewhere before. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, I have that effect on people. It's something about my face. But he still maintains that very Cary Grantness about himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's in a weird way. It's similar to how we talked about <laughs> Chuck Norris and the canon thing, <laughs> where he's embracing this schlock character that he's made over the years. And right. he, yeah. he, he finds a way to carve it down to where it still fits the times, but he right. still can be that persona that everyone yeah. knows him to be his Cary Grantiness. Right, right. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of that stuff ends up having to be toned down too with whatever you're working with. Because the directors back then, this we're talking about in the time where directors back there, if they don't like what you're doing, they can walk up and slap you in the face and say, do it right. <laughs> and yeah, you can't yeah. go crying to the media or anything. Right. You gotta, you know. Once you hold still, now I gotta start all over again. Oh! The one catch about Cary Grant, though, is he kind of falls into it by accident in a way. He's not trained in transatlantic. It's just he's born and raised in 
Britain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his name was actually Archibald Leach, and he grew up in the slums of London and all that stuff. So he he had, uh, I think he came over here as a young teen, right, in mm -hmm. the States. So even though transatlantic is a mixture of the two right, in a constructed way, his is just kind of like by chance is a yeah. little bit of that. He comes into it accidentally, but organically. Yeah. <laughs> but organically, exactly. That's perfectly put. So, right. right. It becomes his signature. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So even when it starts dying out around him, he stands out because it's that's how he delivers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's and that's that thing I'm talking about. He kind of embraces this. Well, this is mine. You know. Right. You guys <laughs> right. can't do this. You do your you you Charlton Heston. You do go play a Mexican here and right, you go right. do this. I'm this is me and I'll never do that. I'm going to do this. And his persona and coolness of how he delivers and the the way he is in in all of those different things like his girl Friday and even all the way up into North by Northwest, it informs how other people create characters because that's that character is what informs how he uh, how Ian Fleming goes on to write James Bond. Right. Okay. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. Another very hyper distinctive accent and it i guess it is a little transatlantic or mid-atlantic but it's um james mason mm -hmm. i like the unusual flavor of thunderbird wine it's an exceptionally good drink for every occasion he, he's another one when you were talking about cary grant and cary grant kind of carving out a, a thing for himself in his own unique way right james mason does something very similar where yeah. You can't not hear him. Not he just is that way. I don't. I don't know. I mean, if you probably did a private interview with him, he still would talk like that. Right. But he has a very distinctive accent. Though, yeah. And 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 kind of strains enunciation on everything. Right. Well, you even take someone that comes from Germany he has to learn our English language because he's an escape. He wants to get out of there before the Nazis start doing what their thing. So Peter Lorre comes over here, does right. his thing, and he has that very distinctive because he learns phonetically. Right, our language uh, to, right. to to be a part of of the what he loves, which is the art of making movies and everything. So when he comes over here, he has that strange voice that he talks. In, but that becomes yeah. something that is a part of him and only him. Right. No, now, now, right now, I want to ask my questions now, and and I want to have my answers now. You hear? And I feel like audiences at this time are kind of like endeared to the quirks of these actors in yeah. a way you know what i mean totally uh, be probably because everything is so formulaic at the time right and humphrey humphrey bogart has a very like you said he has a very distinctive delivery yeah not particularly my beloved paris can you imagine us in london when you get there ask me and he's never going to be able to do that transatlantic thing because he has that thick accent of his his American bravado yeah. accent already. Right, right. So he does his he plays that character. He fits perfectly into that little. I'm a private detective. You may think it's dumb, but I'm still going to trick. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you were saying that everyone talks on this one level because the transatlantic thing starts to come in and everything. Yeah. But then once they start training, like you're saying, Brando's coming in, James Dean is coming in, they're breaking through these barriers and stuff. And then the important thing for actors then was, okay, don't play you, play someone else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah become something else and right. become something else to the point of where you're never not that thing until the job is done. Right. right. Which exactly. Is, 
you know, it's pretty hardcore. And there are still some actors that do that today. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Daniel Day-Lewis being Daniel Day. the, probably the, the most famous. Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, Joaquin Phoenix. And I guess that Meryl Streep did that up until, I think, a few years ago. Um, yeah. uh, maybe six, seven years ago, she said uh, enough of the... She enjoyed being around with the crew on right. when not on camera and just getting to know people. And if she was in this character right. all the time, she couldn't do that. And she got she's like, I'm getting too I'm getting too old for this kind of right. thing. Is, you know, 1941, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, did America go cap in hand and ask Tojo for a peaceful negotiation of terms? Well, good for her. Because yeah. obviously De Niro's not doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's another example of the method, and boy, he jumped ship, didn't he? Grandpa! Daddy! Hi, Grandpa. Hello, sweetheart. How's your daughter's place, Ed? She gave me my grandson's room. He's not too happy about it. You know, in the 50s, when all of this starts starting to break up a bit, you get into the 60s and all these things, you, like you said, Brando comes out, and if you look at his different performances, again, looking at it from the time that they're coming out, there's yeah. starting to be a little bit of groundbreaking. They're, they're a little bit on me, anyway. Over the top. A little <laughs> over the top, and James Dean, where he, he's looked at. A lot of people love... Rebel Without a Cause or Giant? Yeah, so Rebel Without a Cause, everyone, that's the one that, that's a go-to movie if, if you're going to be a James Dean fan. A lot of people point at that one. At the, I've yes. seen it, and I think it's okay. I think he's yeah. a little too large in it. I think his best performance is in East of Eden. I saw that uh -huh. for the first time, like, maybe a few months ago, and I was like, he is excellent in this. Right. He's amazing in this. But I forgave him, and it's been you all right ever since. You forgave him? Yes. <laughs> you forgave him because you threw a ring of his worth three thousand dollars into the river. That's right. And you forgave him. That's right. <laughs> okay, I've never seen it. Yeah. And it's not that over the top thing. Well, you know what we consider bad acting today is from the room, right? You know that right. whole uh, and, and that whole scene where he's going, "You're tearing me apart, Lisa," which is taken directly. He's copying James Dean from uh, Rebel Without a Cause, right? Which was considered severe acting at the time, which is why uh, you know that weird guy is doing that. What's his name? Right. Wiseau. Tommy, yeah, Tommy Wiseau is doing that. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. I'm not a big fan of Streetcar Named Desire. I think it's... Me either. It doesn't play well with me at all. Again, right. I guess I'm just... It's out of my time, out of my league. I never even tried to watch it until maybe 10 years ago. So I was already too old for it, I guess, right. or something. Right. But, you know, that's like a huge groundbreaking thing for him and for Marlon Brando. And uh, But I, I prefer that more measured, famous speech from On the Waterfront where he's mm -hmm. talking about being a, a washout. You know, right. I could have been a bum. I could have been a contender. Yeah. And that's that kind of – he's doing an accent in that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dive for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. He's delivering it in a, not a sing-songy kind of way. He's no. just, there's a lot of emotion and rawness to right. it. And, and, and that's what kind of like takes everybody aback in the yeah. 50s when they see that and they go, well, th th there is something different. Yeah. There is something to this. 
even in that movie, there's other big performances in it that when you see him doing that, you're like, this he, he seems so much more genuine. Right. And these other people are still in that 50s Hollywood time. Like yeah, kind of like big. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be a star. Right. <laughs> yeah. Even talking about Rebel Without a Cause and East of Eden, both of those are in 55. And it's right. weird to see how he's so good, in my opinion. Yeah. In my opinion, he's so good and so genuine in Easter Eden. And then for me in Rebel Without a Cause, it's just way too much projection on the performance. Yeah, it's to me, it's like, you know, he's playing a teenager, like a 15, 16-year-old, right. or well, I would say 16, 17-year-old kid. And, and I think he's probably in his early 20s at that right. point. And, and it's, it, so he's, he's, he's juvenileing up the role a little too right. much, and I think. Right. But at the time, I guess it felt very real. Right. Hey, got the bullets! So yeah, and that does start to change things, right? Because everything's changing. Like we said, um, the Hayes Code is starting to wear off. It still exists at this point, right. but it's not being quite as shoved in everybody's faces. And movies are starting to get a little more raw, and uh, the, the performances are starting to get more realistic. Oh, for sure. And uh, so that's changing the way dialogue is performed yeah For sure so that when we get into the 60s the change has begun right you know and uh, another big part of that too is you got to imagine like before all before the 60s hollywood had locked down like you had the big studios and that right. was where and if you right. weren't a part of those you probably weren't going to get seen anywhere because they owned right. the theaters and all of that yes. stuff right so you get into the 60s and you got people groundbreaking people like roger corman coming into business learning the business right. saying i hate right. the way the big studios do this i'm going to go do this my way and he starts coming out and i can't rattle off a bunch of names of his his movies as no. we talked about before on another episode he's all right. he's more about output of talent then in my opinion than a yeah. lot of name but, but the stuff that he starts to put out is unlike anything that's ever released there and even though they're not getting huge releases and stuff the dialogue is not central on the uh the script that they're controlling they're wanting more natural performances so what he's pushing for is here's the outline of the story let your emotion lead you through the dialogue kind of thing and, and that really calls to a lot of especially actors coming out at that time right. it really calls for a lot so you got nicholson coming out of that i'm a weary disillusioned soldier and you're the only pleasant sight that i've seen in seven months Dennis right. Hopper and all of those people really coming out and, and giving these big performance. Peter Fonda, all of those guys coming out. It's the changing of the guard yeah. because it's old, it's old Hollywood is still holding on yeah. with their big epic films like Moses and all this right. crap, you know, uh, this, the Cecil B. DeMille type stuff. Right. Yeah. That's very huge and that's right. this big stuff. But then underneath all that, you're having some of the counterculture type films pushing back, you know, yeah. like the, something like uh, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs Sidney Poitier, Martin Landau, in They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Where we're giving African-American actors chances to, to, right. to be in stuff and uh, tell different kinds of stories and, uh, right. you know, the, hor the horror genre. You know, Alfred Hitchcock, again, yeah. starting in 1960, changes. Not only does he change movies with... Uh, psycho he right. you know like adding genre film making it almost taking it out of schlock and and giving it kind of a sense of class you know right. in a way even though he's doing it as a schlocky right. film no, it becomes sure. classy it elevates from the horror movies of the 50s which are all googly-eyed monsters right right you know making man the monster in right. psycho it just shows how it shows the atmosphere and era of the time for movies uh -huh. the shift that's starting right. to happen it's becoming a little bit more than just 
lighthearted entertainment. It's mm-hmm. starting to move people in a way. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. You know, not to say like you know things like Gone with the Wind and stuff like that did that for some, but they were you right. know, it's almost starting to become mainstream to be like that. You know, yeah. the song and dance stuff is going away for good. Right. There's no business like show business like no business I know. Around the end of the 50s into the 60s is when I think big Hollywood studios, especially the things like MGM, realized that, oh, shit, the thing that we've been writing with these musicals this whole time, we can't <laughs> we can't rely on that anymore because people right. aren't don't give a shit about it anymore. R- yeah. You know, they're doing shit like Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> they're bringing that <laughs> right. guy that was just in those cool-ass uh, Italian movie westerns, and they're bringing yeah. him over to sing in this, uh, like, no, we're not, we don't want to see him do that. <laughs> right. When I got gold fever... And rolling girl and fellow stuff can cure the gold fever. And, and, and because culture is changing and conservatism is being challenged quite a bit. Right. And, it, and, and Hollywood tends to be, you know, artists and, and, and liberals that they're trying. And, the, you know, also the whole we've just passed the whole communism, McCarthyism thing, too. So a lot of these blacklisted guys are getting back into filmmaking after they paid their dues, I right. guess. Some of them are. Some of them still have to wait a while. But For sure. they, they now have a different kind of uh, anger and angst to, right. to, to portray in their, fil- their scripts because of what have happened to them. Yeah. I mean, even if you take someone like what we were just saying about how people are kind of put through the ringer, really important people to movies, maybe not. Maybe not his direct influence on dialogue, but if right. you take someone like in 1941, you have Orson Welles doing yeah. Citizen Kane, and how influential that movie becomes, not when it was released, because it's a, it's a bomb when it's released, right. but when it, it goes on to influence how, you know, German expressionism is really right. expressed in that film, and he, he, the cinematographer that he got for that film basically says that the best way to learn if you if you think you know everything is to work with someone who doesn't know anything because then they're just like why can't we put the, the camera yeah exactly. why can't we do this he's right he's questioning why we can't break these rules that we've done for so long yeah right and now a word from us Ooh my favorite people. So let's say you want to reach out to us, ask us some questions or make comments that are not negative and mean. No, no, we're very sensitive. Or if you want to participate in some of the questions we ask each other on the show, answer them so we can see your answers. Right. Boy, am I right. If we, if you're going to try and look for us on Instagram or Facebook, it is TFTFP Podcast. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, it's Podcast TFTFP. Right. Yeah, and we also have yes, yes, a shiny, mm-hmm. spick and span little email address Ooh. that goes by the name of tftfppodcast at gmail.com. Mm, rolls right off the tongue, it does. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. also, like, subscribe, and review us because that helps us with the algorithm thing <laughs> that everybody else says and I'm supposed to say. Spoken like a true professional, Tim. Yeah, one of the things that in the 60s that starts to happen, it's happened before, 
what, what we've had before is catchphrases. So in the 30s, we had catchphrases. Right. Because you had the Three Stooges, of course, was... Fight me! What have I got to lose? That became things that they were expected to say. They, you, right. you expected them to do that. Well, you, here's another nice mess you've gotten me into. Our own Hardy. That's their right. thing. Yeah, Everyone yeah. has their catchphrases, and that's something that's just repetitive through the years. People in dialogue like things if they're going to be a reoccurring character then they have to have some kind of thing that they have to always do or say or anything so then you get into the 60s and another play on that is one-liners and then we really get that in, in full force with the james bond movies right hi i'm plenty but of course you are plenty are too named after your father perhaps those things come in and he always has his little one-liner that he has to say like in dr no he oh, shoots yeah. the guy with a spear gun <laughs> I think he got the point. <laughs> there's yeah, always right. those little things all through those movies right. that he does. That. And those things kind of catch on. And, the, and so much so, they become so big. And because they're attached to an action-elemented film, action embraces those things. And as you right. see, we get into the 80s, and then they really start taking off. Right. Things. But they start, yeah. I think, the main big ones start right then of where one-liners start to really become an important thing. <laughs> In the in in Hollywood, yeah, and I mean you're having this leading man like Sean Connery who just kind of has this delivery anyway. This right, you can't wipe the smugness off his face, <laughs> right. so it it, it kind of it hits in a different way, right? Right. You know. Yeah, for sure. And then like we talked about in our anti-heroes ep- episode, we have the Sergio Leone movies kind of like oh yeah, they they change. Obviously, those movies are dubbed, but they're also there's. Th- that's a movie that says a lot without saying a lot. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, and so that's another big shift in dialogue as well because you don't need it as much. Right. You know, and, and then that puts more emphasis on uh, a facial expression or right. uh, posture and all right. that. You know, and, and, and I guess in a way that is dialogue. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's expressing the story without saying words. But And you're taking a, an Italian director. Sergio Leone. Yeah, you, yeah. Sergio Leone. He lived in a country who wasn't up on a lot of technology for the movie theater so a lot of the stuff that he was watching that wasn't really current was he fell in love with was things like silent films right and so he sees that well storytelling is more told visually than dialogue so dialogue's not going to be all that important and then you get someone like clint eastwood that even comes in and challenges dialogue even more say i don't need to say that i don't need to say that i don't need to yeah all of those things combined into it so you see reverse engineering in a way from right. a, a creator in the art of filmmaking saying, instead of going forward in dialogue, let's go backward a little bit. Right, right. Let's rein <laughs> it in and right. just, yeah. And, and if it weren't for Clint Eastwood's charismatic kind of angry expression, mm-hmm. that famous squinty eye thing that mm-hmm. he, he says like a hundred words with just that look in his eye, you know yep. what I mean? So, I mean, and then that, it's so damn cool as we talked about before that it starts to become what everybody else wants to be right you know yeah i don't think it's nice you laughing you see my mule don't like people laughing it's the crazy idea you're laughing at him now if you apologize like i know you're going to i might convince him that you really didn't mean it yeah, and and here's another thing that starts to happen in the late '60s. I'm gonna and then uh, and then really kicks in into the '70s, which it's a big part of counterculture and basically saying fuck you to conservatism and the Hayes Code and all that stuff is 
swear. Somebody give me a fucking wiener before I die. <laughs> Cursing mm-hmm. and swearing starts coming into dialogue, you know. Right. Well, the violence and the sex kind of goes hand in hand with the bad language right. and all that stuff, and and kind of the pushing the envelope of uh, storytelling right. to a dark edge. And then you know we get into the '70s, which is a very dark, yeah, time period of filmmaking in a good right. way. I mean, like uh, uh, basically all of the shininess of Hollywood right. from the 1940s, we'll say, mm-hmm. is completely dead by the 1970s. Right. Uh, and, and it's all very dystopian stuff and right. bad guys are winning heroes are dying the girl gets killed you know right. and she says oh fuck while she's getting stabbed right <laughs> you know what's really weird too is as the it starts to shift from the 60s to the 70s and there's swearing and there's violence and then there's real peril in films and all this grittiness starts to come in and the polish as you're saying is starting to to ease out of the films and stuff the filmmakers that are doing this are fans of the films that were polished and all that but they're, they're what they're doing is they're doing what any artist would do is they're taking what they see in life and expressing it through their medium right yeah and then it comes out that way so we're not gonna say oh darn it yeah <laughs> we're not gonna say oh shucks golly gee willikers <laughs> right <laughs> and so you you have yep. you know you have something like um bonnie and clyde come out where they you know, i think it was yeah. the first time they said shit and then you, you, right. you uh, i think in the 70s uh mash is the first time you hear fuck and that's uh, right. robert oldman all right bub your fucking head is coming right off and the, you you should hear fuck in a film where it's about right. war <laughs> you right. know, you, you right. should hear those yeah. things. Even though that's a more lighthearted take on the subject, it still has its dramatic tone. And so you right. you have to balance that. And, and you're not going to balance that correctly or realistically, I would imagine, with, with people sitting in the audience who's probably been through a war. I didn't say, oh, shucks. Yeah. Right. So it, it's the what the films are taking on that's that's starting to project how dialogue is gonna go. All right, Popeyes here. Get your hands on your heads. Get off the bar and get on the wall. Come on, move. We told you people were coming back. We're gonna keep coming back here until you clean this bar up. What is this? A fucking hospital here? Huh? Get your hands on your fucking head. Get in there. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of like pushing against conventions to kind of take the steam off of the offense, yeah. offensiveness. You know For what sure. I mean? Like the example I used before is uh, South Park in the late 90s. Ended up pushing the envelope of what was considered funny and laughable. Right by being as offensive as humanly possible and mm-hmm. and I think that's what happened in the 70s in film oh yeah for know. sure I think in Planet of the Apes he's the first person to say god damn you god damn you all the <laughs> Good old Charleston Heston pushing the. Yeah, he, Charles he's raising Heston, the yeah. bar of language. Yeah, he sure is. Um, Soylent Green is people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a guy who kind of kept going. Yeah. You know? Oh, no, for sure. 
he jumped on the 70s bandwagon and he didn't really shed his no. 50s corniness though he just kind of held on to who he was with that overacting like, this is who i am god damn, damn it. it yeah that very <laughs> bill shatner kind of yeah. overdoing it thing take your sticking paws off me you damn dirty ape so uh, yeah and and the rawness of what becomes 70s film c- kind of requires realistic yeah. dialogue and, and performance in a way because think of Serpico and, yeah. and the other one he did Dog Day Afternoon yep. uh, very early high-end Al Pacino you know before he's kind of sold himself <laughs> out <laughs> you know right. uh, but they're very real performances they're very raw there's a lot of swearing yeah. there's a lot of screaming there's a lot of emotion right. hey it's me Serpico hey police officer Please. I'm a law officer. I'm a police officer. Jesus, Frank, how was I supposed to recognize you? You stupid fuck. Frank, I didn't know you. You didn't know me. You fire without looking. You fire without a warning, without a fucking brain in your head. Yeah, they're really doing stuff in that. You know what I mean? And it's such a huge departure. Even t- to what started this all when you go back to Rebel Without a Cause right. or or On the Waterfront yeah. and all that stuff, you know, which are these gritty movies of the 50s. And you look at that and you're like, well, it doesn't get any grittier right. than that, you know. And, that, and, and that's perfect what you're saying, too, because you take something like Serpico and it's saying all these things that are not said you know he's they're saying fuck i think more than a lot of movies are saying it at that time and they're putting you in this place where you're not used to watching these things and maybe anything can happen and anything does happen in that film so when you get to you know what happens in that film and everything that unrolls out there they can do anything with their characters your main character can get killed or whatever happens to main characters in those movies of that dog day or whatever we're talking about and you got those filmmakers making those films at that time that come out that ends up becoming some of our biggest filmmakers today that are all coming out of the same place. You got George Lucas, you got Martin Scorsese, you yeah. got Brian De Palma, you got uh, right. Steven Spielberg, all of those guys, John Carpenter, all those guys are coming out mm-hmm. of the UFC and they're starting to birth their own. And Francis Ford Coppola, all of these guys coming yeah. out. The new Hollywood, yep. yeah. And you see the difference and the tracks that those guys make. Spielberg mainly is on that he was a fan of big Hollywood and he kind of stays that course. He doesn't always stay that course, but in the beginning, that's his genre. He sticks to that. Right. And Scorsese and De Palma and those guys, even Lucas at the time, doesn't go big Hollywood when they come out. Right. No, not right away. No. Yeah, I mean, Lucas is a kind of an anomaly because I don't think he intended for Star Wars to be what it right. was. Uh, he just wanted to be a cool right. theatrical piece, kind of like in the spirit of what Spielberg does. But you know, right? And then he's he's forever changed. Right. But you know, with American Graffiti, he's he's kind of doing a reflection of America's on itself and all that stuff. Granted, it's a very um, the dialogue in that film is very reflective of of, of our perception yeah. of the cleanliness of the 50s. Greasers, I guarantee you, greasers at that time, like the pharaohs, right. you know. If you went to the real pharaohs back in the 1950s, they're screaming "fuck shit, right. kill," uh, you know. <laughs> right. I'm gonna. But in in that movie, there, it's a very hyper realized memory of what uh, 50s America was. For sure. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Hey, I like the color of your car, there, man. What's that supposed to be? Sort of a cross between piss yellow and puke green, ain't it? Yeah. I mean, if you look at his other film, THX, it's this real dystopian future where right. the government's kind of yeah. comes. The man is pushing you down, kind of thing, and you right. take. Yeah. This drug and do this thing and don't question your 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 area in life and and all that right. stuff so you see where he is even artistically he's way ahead of the game as far as visually 
he he, right. he makes things look way grander than what they are and he shows you a future mm-hmm. that even back then before he, he starts spicing it up as he gets older with all of CG add-ons that he does later if you watch the original version of that it's really like dark right right raw performances but going back to the two of the other guys you mentioned in that in that graduating class there mm-hmm. uh, when you go to the very edge of pushing the envelope of dark and pushing the envelope of edgy mm-hmm. it's it's Brian De Palma and Martin Scorsese oh yeah so you know like Mean Streets is a very raw yep. you know something Mikey you make me laugh you know that you know I borrow money all over this neighborhood left and right from everybody and I never paid them back so I can't borrow no money from nobody no more right so who does that leave me to borrow money from but you I borrow money from you because you're the only jerk off around here that I can borrow money from without paying back right right because you know that's what you are that's what I think of you a jerk off <laughs> you're smiling like he's a jerk off <laughs> you're a fucking jerk off it's half theatrical half documentarian yeah. in a way the way it's being followed you know yeah. in its rawness and, and it's kind of um no punches pulled on on how scummy these yeah. people are that we're following all of them yeah. and um just how decayed new york city is at this point right. right and 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 brian de palma basically who discovers robert de niro right. and then kind of passes him off to <laughs> you know they're like friends in yeah, film yeah. school but he passes passes him off to martin scorsese Mar- martin scorsese takes him and never lets him go <laughs> he's like this is my leonardo dicaprio before leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> right but um a lot a lot of the um uh, films that Brian De Palma are putting out are like the Tarantino of their time where he's like I'm gonna take violence and vulgarity and I'm gonna put on a show with it and and just kind of show you the dark reflection of yourself right American society kind of thing yeah you got a gun fuck out of here man get out of here suck on this I mean, if you watch Mean Streets even today, it's one of those films that when you start watching it, there's no way you can predict what's happening with those characters by the time that movie ends. It's one of those things that you're right. just like, what is going to happen with these characters? Like, right, there's so right. many loose cannons in it. You're like, I don't know where this is going to end up, which I'm sure back then <laughs> yeah. was just like so refreshing to see for people who are really into the art of cinema. Okay, I just come out of confession, right? And the priest gives me the usual penance, right? Ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers, ten whatever. Now, you know that next week I'm going to come back and he's going to just give me another 10 Hail Marys and another 10 Our Fathers, and... I mean, you know how I feel about that shit. Those things, they don't mean anything to me. They're just words. Now, that may be okay for the others, but it just doesn't work for me. I mean, if I do something wrong, I just want to pay for it my way. So I do my own penance for my own sins. We're saying all of this about Scorsese and De Palma to talk about, okay, we have these guys that are creating these kind of movies and really opening up cinema to go into the 80s in one direction. Right. And then we have Lucas and, and Spielberg on the opposite end of the spectrum. I don't think intentionally, but they're opening up another whole area of how dialogue and filmmaking are going to be combined in the future. Because even if you take Lucas right now and what he's, what we're saying, he goes from 
uh, THX to American Graffiti into Star Wars, the way that they deliver their dialogue in Star Wars. Or the way he wrote the the, the dialogue. Yeah, it's very technical, very blocky, and not very fluid. Take these two over to the garage, will you? I want them cleaned up for dinner. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. You can waste time with your friends when your chores are done. Now, come on, get to it. And it's reflective of his films that he grew up on right. and that he's commenting on, and he's introducing it to a new fandom yeah, that's going to embrace A new generation, that. yeah. Right, whereas Martin Scorsese and Ryan De Palma are, are taken, if you want to put a label on it, I guess, would you say the low road? <laughs> Even though I don't right. think it's the low road, it, right. some people might, but he, they're going the more guttural, raw, realistic right. reflection of society kind of movies. And then Spielberg and Lucas are going to more this fantasy retrospective kind of filmmaking where, because Steven Spielberg is basically responsible for the summer blockbuster. Right. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. Him and George become the summer blockbuster gods, right? right? And I think that that's the diversion point between what you're asking there. Mm-hmm. Why, why is De Palma and Scorsese on this road and and Lucas and Spielberg are on this road? And it's because of success hits right. Spielberg and Lucas differently than it hits yeah. Scorsese and De Palma. Because they don't have huge major hits. Like Taxi Driver is a, it's a hit, but not... Yeah gargantuan huge gigantic thing it takes him a while to get to that stature and even so you know nowadays he can have a 200 million dollar budget but it took him up until the 90s to get that kind of respect whereas Spielberg look at Jaws and Close Encounters or Star Wars uh, and compare that to Taxi Driver or right Carrie and whatever you know blowout dressed to kill all right you know these movies that the Palma and Scorsese very different, very different kind of. They're, they're splitting into genre, right? Yeah, yeah. And so Spielberg, what he's doing, what he's contributing. Okay, he's writing some of the things that he's doing and everything. Especially you look at E.T., the Sugarland Express. Sugarland Express is probably one of his. It, pre-Jaws. Edgy. Yeah, a little more edgy and stuff like that. There's some Hollywood sheen on it, and I don't think he can... That's the way he tells a story. He's a master storyteller. Right. Visual master storyteller. And so he's writing some of those things. He's he's contributing to the script on Jaws because it's such a troubled production. So a lot of those things, when they're getting into tight binds and everything, they're creating dialogue on the scene and how to do it. And then he has all of these older actors like Robert Shaw, newer yeah. actors like Richard Dreyfus that are right. coming in with their own ways of acting and apparently those two really clash on how they do things. Right. And, you know, Shaw's definitely more of a, a method guy. Yeah. You have Richard Dreyfus, he's more of a theater guy that's coming in and he's just like, what is going on with all of this thing? And the, their deliveries, although they clash in the way that they're taught. Yeah. They mix so perfectly on screen, on screen. because yeah. those personalities shouldn't get along. Right, right. It's a bull shark. Scraped me when I was taking samples. I got something for you. That's the thresher. You see that? Chief Thresher's tail. Thresher? 
What's this shark? I got the creme de la creme. All right, here, hold on. Yeah, you see that? Right there. Mary Ellen Moffat. She broke my heart. <laughs> and so the dialogue that what happens with Spielberg is if you watch the progression of how he does, you know, Close Encounters and he gets to E.T. and then he gets all the way up into these big films, Raiders and everything, dialogue, even though he's not even necessarily writing some of the dialogue, the dialogue in his films influence visual style yeah. that you're seeing. Because right. someone's maybe giving exposition about something, and he's showing you what the object they're talking about. Then goes back to the character, shows their emotion. Then goes right. back to something else that someone's responding to. All of that is dialogue moving plot right. in a visual way that's exceptionally brilliant from yeah. a, from a, a filmmaker. If you watch some of this stuff, well, yeah. I mean, even if you get all the way up into some of the stuff that he's doing, he's still doing that in films like Munich and stuff like that. Yeah. Brilliant filmmaker, and like that. Whereas yeah. Lucas, you see him writing some of his stuff and then pushing back on, I don't want to tell these stories visual, visually. You direct these movies. I'll write these films. Right. And he becomes that kind of a, a film, a filmmaker influencer, I, I would even say. Right, right. Mostly it's that I come up with an idea for a movie and I just want to see it. And in the worst possible situations, I've had to make it myself. <laughs> in the best of all possible situations, I've gotten Steven Spielberg to make it. I think Spielberg and Lucas are both pushing filmmaking in technical ways in very different technical yep. ways. Yep. George is taking the technology and advancing filmmaking into what we have today. I mean, he's pretty much, this, I mean, love him or not, uh, hate him, he is responsible right. for modern filmmaking. All our cool shit. <laughs> technical, yeah, special effects and camera cameras yep. and, and everything. Thing. And like you said, uh, Steven Spielberg is the technical uh, shot master yeah. uh, on how to film everything. Yeah. Steven's able to walk into a room, look for a second or two, say, here, here, move that here, give me a, a 25 millimeter here, put it this way, face forward, move it, silhouette here. Two takes, three takes, that's enough, thanks, move, let's move on. It was amazing. Yeah, all of your filmmakers that you have today that tell a really pretty story visually, yeah. uh, there's a 80% chance that they came from fandom from being a Steven Spielberg fan right, because right. of how brilliantly he tells stories. Right. Even if you don't like some of the movies that he's doing, if you just turn the, the sound off and watch his visual style, he's making silent films. Right, right. And so visually that you don't need the dialogue, which right. fits in perfectly to, the, to what we're talking about here. So I just want to counterpoint Star Wars, uh, Raiders, Star Wars, what we just said with the next phase of um, yeah. De Palma, and, which is where we get to Scarface and uh, right. Raging Bull. No matter how big I get, no matter who I fight, no matter what I do, I ain't never going to fight you Lewis. Yeah, that's right. He's a heavyweight, you're a middleweight. We know that. I ain't never gonna get a chance to fight the best there is. And you know something? I'm better than them. I ain't never gonna get a chance. So by the point of what we're talking about here in, in the early 80s with Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, and, and that's the collaboration between George and Steven, and uh, E.T. and uh, um, Star Wars, or Empire mm -hmm. Strikes Back, and all that stuff, these big gargantuan movies, then you have, uh, to, to continue on with the opposite of that class, Martin Scorsese has Raging Bull and uh, Brian De Palma has Scarface coming in. Mm -hmm. I got a fucking junkie for a wife. Don't eat nothing. Sleeps all day with them black chains on. Wakes up with a quailu. 
And who won't fuck me, because she's in a coma. I can't even have a kid with her, man. Her womb is so polluted. I can't even have a fucking little baby with her. And and by the time we're getting to Scarface with that, then the word fuck is yeah. just r- rampage throughout <laughs> that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It is extremely violent. There's a there's a, a very suggestive. You don't see it, but there's a suggestive chainsaw bloody cutting up the guy scene right. with uh, raging bull. You have uh, again the method acting of Robert De Niro where he's ga- out gaining the weight. Right. But it also the, just there's also a ton of fucks in that between him and and uh, Joe Pesci. Right. I'm gonna kill somebody, Joey. Well, go ahead and kill everybody. You're a tough guy. Go kill people. Kill Vicky. Kill Salvi. Kill Tommy Como. Kill me while you're out. What do I care? You're killing yourself the way you eat. You're a fat fuck. Look at you. What do you mean? I don't understand. What do you mean kill you? Me. Kill me. Start here. Kill me first. Do me a fucking favor. Because you're driving me crazy. The two roads is, is Scorsese de Palma raw and Spielberg and Lucas extravagant. Right. And those two things. So in Raiders, they're both honoring, again, the films from the past, but what they're doing brilliantly too is they're taking serials that yeah. had that over-the-top dialogue delivery, and they're bringing it into modern thing where you have actors really emoting good emotion and investing you in it. Harrison Ford is is, you know, he's been in such a, all these top-notch you know blockbusters, but he's a really fucking good actor. Yeah, he, he's a really good actor, so he can he brings a substance to. Yeah, these kind of ridiculous roles in a way, like a Han Solo or a, a Indiana Jones, that that just it, it it removes all the cheesiness of the of the era it came from in the 1940s and and adds a gravitas to it and a weight to it, right? So that it balances out beautifully, right? Yeah, yeah. So what does that mean to you, uh, Tannis? Well, well the city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you what mean, do you mean Commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. You think you guys ever go to Sunday school? But then on the other end, you have this just... Like guttural, raw, like living life at its lowest, and right, you know, and you even see De Palma even embracing some of the extravagance, especially with uh, with uh, Scarface, and you have you have Al Pacino, who we were just talking about, who is very raw in Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, and he's very extravagant and exuberant. uh, Say hello to my little friend. Very extravagant, and, and 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 unfortunately, we lose Al Pacino from this yeah. point on. <laughs> yeah. The dog day, the, the Godfather Al Pacino, the dog day <laughs> afternoon Al Pacino, the Serpico Al Pacino. He's gone. gone. He's gone. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. He is now forever. Hooah! You yeah. know that's. He's now forever eight packs a day. Al Pacino. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. He loves he loves Tony Montana so much <laughs> <laughs> that he never lets him go. But yeah, so and other people that are coming out of the '70s, though the the writers that become big and everything. You got Michael Cimino, and you got Coppola, you got Robert Town and Goldman. All of those guys that come in in the '70s and start delivering realistic dialogue into films like you know Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Kind right. of a lighthearted little romp, but it's got some real real good dialogue in it. Playful, yeah. also a right. little bit of raw. Ready? No, we'll jump. Like hell, we will. No, it'll be okay. The water's deep enough, we don't get squished to death. They'll never follow us. How do you know? 
Would you make a jump like that and you didn't have to? I have to, and I'm not gonna. Well, we got to, otherwise we're dead. Uh, we got to. Up. Get away from me. Why? I want to fight them. They'll kill us. Maybe. You want to die? Do you? All right. I'll jump first. No. Nope. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim. <laughs> Why, are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. You have, um... Robert Town, who, who delivers, you know, an, another thing we're looking back on old Hollywood with Chinatown yeah. and a detective story, but real actors give, delivering really raw kind of dialogue and really serious ramifications for the choices that the character making that you'd mm-hmm. never see in like the big sleep or anything like that. Right. Okay, go home. But in case you're interested, your husband was murdered. Somebody's been dumping thousands of tons of water from the city's reservoirs, and we're supposed to be in the middle of a drought. He found out about it, and he was killed. But Mrs. Mulray, I goddamn near lost my nose, and I like it. I like breathing through it, and I still think that you're hiding something. So here's another thing that starts to happen, too, though, is with the realism comes... I think period pieces start to come mm. in when you think of well we start with like Barry Lyndon in the 70s oh, right. and then go into Amadeus in uh, the early 80s and um, which wins like all the fucking Oscars that year right and uh, right. it becomes a fashion thing it becomes a thing because then you have dangerous liaisons and oh, oh they, right. uh, and, you know yeah. to step back but do it in a realistic way and, and try to emulate how people spoke in that time period right Mozart I can't think of a time when I didn't know his name. I was still playing childish games when he was playing music for kings and emperors, even the Pope in Rome. Which I think is something from, you know, earlier period pieces is not happening. You know what I mean? We're we're talking about that transatlantic thing where everything is everything. (laughs) Everything is the same no matter what, you know? Right. Well, one of the people that you just named... Or one of the films by a director that we both love, which is Kubrick. Kubrick, If yeah. you look at him, okay, he writes all of his films. Right. And if you look at how he, okay, he didn't write, but he directs Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 Right. You look at the line delivery in that film and how it is very big Hollywood and stuff. Right. And if you match some of the acting styles to how you'll what you'll see come from Kubrick for the rest of that time on, 2001, all the way up. Yeah. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. The best way I've ever heard it described, and I absolutely love it, is there's a film called Life in Pictures. It's a documentary film, and it's about Kubrick's life. Yeah. And Nicholson is talking to him, and he said that there was a conversation between him and Kubrick on set where he's on talking the about the set of The Shining. The set of The Shining, and he's talking about the exuberance not only of the shots in The Shining, but the dialogue in The Shining, too. Right. You know, one of the things he said to me that I've, I've always remembered was in movies, you don't... you don't try and photograph the reality. You try and photograph the photograph of the reality. Distancing himself enough from reality to where you'll accept 
whatever he's putting in front of you. Right. It could be a dream, or it could be whatever's happening in front of him. So if you listen to some of his dialogue and the way it's delivered, it does come a little bit out of old Hollywood, and it does come a little bit out of some of the uh, more contemporary stuff, and it does come out of, out of the, the way you know Brando does things or the way Kurt Douglas does things way in the background. It's taking from all of these different measures, and the perfect thing about that is, is if you watch Dr. Strangelove, He's using different takes from all of these different actors to give you performances like you've never seen from them. So you get those performances yeah. in dialogue that there's no way. George C. Scott, the way he's <laughs> over the top in that film, and I fucking love his character in that film. We are rapidly approaching a moment of truth, both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing, but it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One, where you got 20 million people killed, and the other, where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. Yeah. But you see how he is in that film, compared to the, the dialogue delivery of even some of the characters that Peter Sellers brings. Now, of course, he's very flamboyant with Dr. Strangelove character, but if you watch some of his other characters in that, they're very, like, you know, they're very subdued. And, right. And, and, then, uh, you know, and so his di dialogue delivery, and you watch it throughout, everything he does always seems very Kubrick, never seems anything but mm -hmm. coming from the mind of this man. It's very attached to the filmmaker, the artist that's making his art. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. What happens is, is because of the authenticity that's kind of put into, say, the production of Amadeus and it wins all these awards, hmm. it almost, because of, it becomes a trend to do period pieces and to be as authentic as possible as Oscar bait, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. As movies go on and on. By, and so by like the late 90s and early 2000s and stuff like that, you know, the minute you see a trailer for a period piece, you think, oh, well, these people are going for an Oscar. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> you know, it right. almost becomes a joke in itself, only because of the success of, uh, uh, say, Amadeus or something like that. Oh, and right. how awesome and beautiful it was. And uh, not just in production value, but in, in kind of the realistic portrayal of the time period. You know. Right. After a while, it becomes a character. You know, it's, it's right. almost in the, or it cheapens the experience. So, yeah. Right. All the while writing line when it does hit well, when you have someone like what we've talked about with Daniel Day-Lewis, and he is the period piece guy. Right. And that's the differentiation. Somehow he's able to separate it from, even though it is Oscar bait when he comes out and d does this stuff. Stay alive no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far. We'll find you. It's so intense and so realistic in his delivery and his dedication to oh, yeah. the, the dialogue and, and, and how he's going to deliver it. He sets a bar so high that everybody else seems a little bit like trying to keep up. Unless it's a right. film made in England where everybody right. talks that way anyway, you know. Right. Right. His choices seem so out of the reach of everyone else's that, yeah. Yeah. Just like, how does he know how to deliver that line just like that? Right, right. And you see those period pieces, if you're talking about dialogue and how it's affected throughout the years, you go to Ben-Hur and back in those early days and how the dialogue's delivered in that time and yeah. that era of how you deliver lines like that. It's very Hollywood sheen. You get all the way up and then you talk about things like 
like you see a little bit more of the darkness and stuff in Amadeus and how things are, are delivered and then you see a movie like Gladiator and the lines are very back to Hollywood scene again right. delivered. I'm gonna say this line with bravado and right. you know what I mean and there's always the two roads though yeah. right my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius commander of the armies of the north general of the Felix legions loyal servant to the true Emperor Marcus Aurelius Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. So the, the one thing, though, so the one road was Spielberg and all of these people. All of these people, they are influenced by some of the people and how movies are d delivered dialogue that we've already talked about from the early days. So like Hawks and mm -hmm. Houston and all of these guys are making films, Spielberg and Scorsese and all of these people are fans of this stuff and everything. But when you see Spielberg and the people that go on to influence some of the things that follow in those 80s and everything, we get filmmakers that come out of that era like the Coen brothers. Right. And they start doing films in the 80s, and then you realize, okay, right. these guys are on another level. level. Yeah, with their dialogue, yeah. Right. All right, you hayseeds, it's a stick-up. Everybody freeze. Everybody down on the ground. Well, which is it, young feller? You want I should freeze or get down on the ground? I mean to say, if I freeze, I can't rightly drop. And if I drop, I'm going to be in motion. You see? Shut up! Okay, then. Everybody down on the ground! Y'all can just forget that part about freezing now. Better still get down there. Yeah, y'all hear that, don't you? It's almost like uh, <laughs> if you were a religious person, it's like the hand of God is speaking <laughs> through them in their script writing in a way. And it's weird because their dialogue, if you look out through their filmography up till right now, yeah. 2022, straddles the line of everything we've talked about so far. It's big Hollywood. Yeah. Question now is whether we're gonna let John Q. Public just waltz in here and buy our company. What are you suggesting, Sydney? Certainly we can't afford to buy a controlling interest. Not while the stock is this strong. And it's also serious. Yeah. There's this boy I sent to the electric chair at Huntsville here a while back. My arrest and my testimony. He killed a 14-year-old girl. Papers said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it. Told me that he'd been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said if they turned him out, he'd do it again that he knew he was going to hell. Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. I surely don't. It's all over the place, and sometimes even in the same film. Right. What'd you give for that thing? You don't need to know everything, Carl Jean. I need to know that. Keep running that mouth of yours, I'm gonna take you in the back and screw you. Big talk. Keep it up. Fine. I don't want to know. I don't even want to know where you've been all day. That'll work. Somehow, the way they write it makes yeah. it seem like nothing's wrong here. Right. <laughs> right. Nothing's wrong with this world of this film that I'm watching. Well, the thing that I always love about them, too, and it's, it's a little more prominent in their 90s and 2000s movies, is how they, they always give the upper hand to the lower character. 
Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, uh, he's smarter than everybody else in the room, even though he shouldn't be. And this is Thorstensen Finlanson, who heads a radical splinter group of disgruntled investors. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Finlanson. Say, it might interest you to know that I studied a little Finnish myself in high school. Let's see, I hope I'm not too rusty. Um, Taxus Busa meet Navalman Tors. I love that, that clever kind of twist on things right it just j- gives me joy to no end <laughs> yeah keeping to what you're just saying you look at one of their early films like raising arizona yeah and you see how these kind of hillbilly bumpkins that john goodman and william, william Forsythe. Forsythe when they break out of jail the way they talk yeah and the way they explain to holly hunter when she's asking like so you were released from jail and the way they deliver that line could easily be written as a yeah we broke out of jail or however it is. but the way john goodman presents that dialogue the way it's written yeah it's done in a kind of hillbilly shakespearean way yes exactly <laughs> yes no ma'am uh we released Crashaz on our own recognizance. Whatever here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. That's that's kind of what I'm talking about too. That's the same thing where it's like these, like you said, it's it's it, there's an elevated right. intelligence within these bumpkin type characters. Right. Yeah, that's right. genius. Yeah. yeah, and they the way that they balance that to where they don't always make that character right, but yeah. they make him right sometimes to prove a point of the high society guy in the room mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. you take Hudsucker Proxy and and yes. uh, his character and that matching up with like Paul Newman's character, and so you have Tim Robbins who's kind of the bumpkin in that. Yeah, take this down, dear Miss Archer. I call you Miss because you seem to have missed the boat completely on this one. How on earth would you know whether I'm an imbecile when you don't even have the guts to come in here and interview me man to man? No, change man to man to face to face. No, change face to face to eye to eye and guts to common decency. He doesn't really know. He's, he's out of his element and stuff like that. You have the fast-talking Jennifer Jason Lee, who's right. very much from the Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, the transatlantic thing. Yeah. Novel Bonds, you don't know a thing about that woman. You don't know who she really is. And only a numbskull thinks he knows things about things he knows nothing about. Then you get all the way up to Oh Brother Where Art Thou yeah. and the way that that is delivered and you have the smarty pants of the group which is George Clooney's. Yeah. I've always wondered what's the devil look like? Well, of course, there are all manner of lesser imps and demons, Pete, but the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail and he carries a hay fork. Oh, no. No. But he's still, like, even though he's the smarty pants, he's not that smart. Right, exactly. He's just making himself sound smarter than he is. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And and in some instances in his company of that film, he is the smarty pants, but he thinks he's smarter than everybody in every room. Everywhere, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, right. You stole from my kin. Who was fixing to betray us. You didn't know that at the time. So I borrowed it till I did know. That don't make no sense. Pete is a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. No, but even even like the store clerk in No Country for Old Men, you, right. you know, the, he's just kind of giving those smart ass quips yep. and in a time of uh oh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Call it. Call it. Yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. 
Yeah. And you have Anton Chigar, the main, you know, the killer of that film, and the yeah. way he delivers his lines in that, which there is no fat on that meat at all. <laughs> right, like right. It's lean, and you don't want to fuck with this guy. And yeah. you, you juxtapose that with the barely any line delivery that comes from uh, Josh Brolin's character in that right. film. He says the bare minimum of what he needs to. Yeah. Llewellyn? Yeah. What are you doing, baby? Going out. Going where? Fixing to do something dumber than hell, but I'm going anyways. Well, and I, I think another really good example of, you know, again, beautiful dialogue, beautiful shooting too is is uh miller's crossing and that is a period piece and, and it's going yep. back to that transatlantic thing uh, there's a lot of that going on there and gabriel byrne also yep. not talking a whole lot through that whole movie no. you know what i mean but but saying a lot right bad play leo we got up the wrong side huh same side as always that's what i mean still old money to you. who's your bookie lazar i could put it right for you thanks leo I don't need it. When he does talk, it counts a lot. And then you have the other guys like um, the John Turturro character oh, who's yeah. running his mouth constantly. You know what I mean? Yep. It's the wrong situation. Again, there's different people than we are. We're not muscle down. I, I, I never killed anybody. I used a little information for a chisel. That's all. It's my nature, Tom. I, 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 I can't help it. Somebody hits me an angle. I play it. I don't, I don't deserve to die for that. Do you think I do? John Polito in that. Yo, oh, God. I have to mention that guy. He he shows up in a lot of their movies. That's what made me think of this. He is so brilliant because he is delivering lines like an old Hollywood scene. It's getting so a businessman can't expect no return from a fixed fight. Now, if you can't trust the fix, what can you trust? So John Polito in the three movies I can think of, there's maybe even four, but he's the private eye in The Big, Big Lebowski. Lebowski. Yep. Come on, fuckhead. Relax, man. I'm a brother shameless. Brother Seamus? Like an Irish monk? What the fuck are you talking about? My name is Dofino. I'm a private snoop like you, man. What? A dick, man. He's a little more downtrodden, <laughs> yeah. you know, not quite as elevated as the mobster in Miller's Crossing. Right. And I believe he's also in The Man Who Wasn't There uh, yep. and also kind of playing a swarmy, slimy guy, but yep. has that same... Delivery. Delivery, yeah. Yep. We're just closing, friend. Oh, happy days. I wish I was doing well enough to turn away business. Well, all, it's funny. It's how they find their they find their actors, and yep. and because John Goodman is another one who yep. is just kind of like born to to read their lines, kind of like the way Sam Jackson is born to read Tarantino's lines. Yep. Is the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? Mark and Zero! John Goodman and this guy Polito and, uh, you know, George Clooney and all these guys, and, and even Josh Brolin, they... I would say mostly, though, John Goodman and Polito. <laughs> these yeah. two guys, they, they are so of the yep. Coen brothers. It's, yep. it's almost like... It's hard to separate the two. Yeah, yeah, no. You know. You can't, and to take them out of their parts that they play in all of their films. Any of the movies, and all the way back to Raising Arizona it, for John all, Goodman. All the way back. Yeah. And another one I'll even add to that is Steven Root. He's so good oh, at all yes. of the movies. The yes. way he just, yes. he, 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 you put him in any small, tiny little part, and yeah. he stands out among everyone else. Pan shot. Pan shot. 
<laughs> yeah, in the Ballard of Buster Scruggs, uh, he, him and James Franco in that that little vignette. It, Stephen Root is genius in that whole in that little thing. Right, and and the, the other guy. Timothy Blake Nelson, yeah, yeah. right. The, the way he, yeah, because he, he's from Oklahoma, you know, right. And so he has that kind of, you know, countryness to him. Yep. So as that kind of singing cowboy in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. All day I face the barren waste without the taste of water. He, he doesn't look the part, but he no. definitely sounds the part, and he yep. carries himself that part. It's genius. genius yeah. Cool, clean water. John Goodman, of course, you know, every movie that he's in of theirs, he's just yeah. a standout character. If it's right. Big Dan yeah. that we're talking about. Right, or and Old Brother. Yeah. Right. I believe I've seen you boys around here before. Allow me to introduce myself. Name of Daniel Teague, known in these precincts as Big Dan Teague. All of those who are pressed for time, Big Dan, toot court. Walter and the Big Lebowski. Fucking Nazis. They were Nazis, dude? Oh, come on, Donnie. They were threatening castration. Uh-huh. Are we going to split hairs here? No. Am I wrong? Who's going to detract from the brilliance of what you're seeing Jeff Bridges do in that film? Right. I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. They have to do it in a big way. It's going to yeah. be John Goodman as Walter, and he just, every scene he's in, just steals it. Even the small part he has in Inside Llewellyn Davis. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it's the best part of the The best movie. part of the movie, yes, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah. What's the N stand for? What? What's the N stand for? Lou and Davis. Lewin. Lewin. L-L-E-W-Y-N. It's Welsh. Well, it would have to be something stupid fucking name like that. You don't look Welsh. And in Barton Fink. Barton Fink, Fink. Yeah. yeah. They say I'm a madman, Bart, but I'm not mad at anyone. Honest, I'm not. There's He has that kind of dim-witted yep. optimism, even though he's a murderer. Yep. <laughs> And then Francis McDormand. Well, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's M Mrs. Cohen in a way. Right, but, uh, but she's yeah. so great in everything. In every goddamn thing, <laughs> all the way back to the first one, Blood yeah, Simple. Blood Simple. You know? Right. So yeah, like all of those things, and their influence on dialogue, I think, is monumental. Monumental, yeah. Fargo, How, right? Think of Fargo yeah. and the whole... I was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing. Okay, are you sure? Because I mean, how do you know? Because see, the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators were driving a car with dealer plates, and they called someone who works here, so it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, I, we almost forgot to mention Fargo. I'm almost ashamed of myself, but um, <laughs> <laughs> of all the way, we're mentioning everything but that. And Hail Caesar, too. Hail Caesar is another one where it's mid-Atlantic yep. mid and that fast-paced kind of... And it's a uh, brilliant choice to make that all the characters in that film speak that way in an yeah. era where that is the speak of well, the, the movies at right. that time. It's a yeah. brilliant. The way they, yeah. Just like Lady Killers. We even talked about that. Oh, yeah. We, and, and Yeah, we're like the two fans of Lady Killers and all of United <laughs> States, but right now I want to know what's going on. Oh, indeed, indeed. The thirst for knowledge. 
marriage is a very commendable thing. Though I do believe when you hear the explanation, you shall laugh riotously, slapping your knee and perhaps even wiping away a, a giddy tear relieved of your former concern. Um, the, the dialogue delivery and that. Yeah, Tom, the, what like, everybody hates about Tom Hanks, I think, is perfect. Right. Is He nails it. He nails yep. it. To, for me, he does. Yep. Then you got friends of the Coens that is also om- homaging bravado acting of the y- yesteryear, and that's Sam Raimi. And you look at his Evil Dead films, and right, yeah, the Ash Williams character, yeah. and Bruce Campbell is amped way the fuck yeah, up, right. <laughs> right? But it works. Yeah, it does. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? It's a 12 gauge double barreled Remington. S-Mart's top of the line. You can find this in the sporting goods department. That's right, this sweet baby was made in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Retails for about $109.95. Shop smart. Shop S-Mart. You got that? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's this tongue-in-cheek thing, right? Because they came up together in film school, yeah. right? And and right. Uh, they helped each other out. I think um, they were roommates the, for a while. Yeah, and the Coen brothers helped with the first Evil Dead. Even if you watch Raimi and his rise, and as he goes, even you get to his Spider-Man films. There's a delivery in those Spider-Man yeah. films of the lines where you can tell he's trying to keep it campy, like right. yesteryear movies to play towards the comic book feel of the movie. Right, yeah. That's where it doesn't take itself too seriously. Right. Wait! Who are you? You know who I am. I do. Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. The ensemble, since we're on the ensemble and everything, you take a writer who comes up in the Spielberg-Lucas group, yeah. And he writes Raiders, and then Lawrence Kasdan goes on to write that big chill movie, which is right. just this huge dialogue-heavy movie right. that really starts a trend. And not even necessarily for him, because he doesn't have a lot of huge movies that come out after that. He, I think he has Silverado and then maybe one or two. And then it starts to fall off because he, he stays in that heavy right. ensemble dr- dramatic thing that is just goes out of fashion because people want popcorn like poppy things you know Spielberg's delivering on all these things and you can't have that it it, it doesn't mesh well on those things right when I lost touch with this group I lost my idea what I should be maybe that's what happened to Alex at least we expected something of each other then I think we needed that not me getting away from you people is the best thing ever happened to me (laughs) I mean how much sex fun friendship can one man take as you mentioned before, how Samuel Jackson, he's kind of born to say the lines of Quentin Tarantino, but before Quentin Tarantino could get his lines on screen, he says some of the greatest lines in some of uh, Spike Lee's movies. He's one of right. some of the greatest characters that deliver some of Spike Lee's things. And right. Denzel Washington, too, in those films, before they yeah. become the big guys that they are today. Right. They're saying lines from Spike Lee in some of his, his early great films. What? Come on, you could do me this one solid. What? Would you rather I go out and rob some elderly person? Steal? Either way, I'm going to get high. I really hate having to resort to knocking elderly people in the head for their money. But I'll do it. I'll do it. You know I'll do it. I'll do it. 
I do it. Yeah, you know I do it. I like getting high. Uh, I'm a crackhead. And that's the truth, Ruth. <laughs> And uh, but yeah, you have all of these guys coming out. You know, Spike Lee is definitely going more towards the uh, Scorsese road. Yeah, he's telling his stories. And and another thing to mention too is, is like his experience of New York, right? Which is obviously extremely different from Martin Scorsese's experience right. of New York. And in the eighties, we are also introduced into David Mamet comes into the scene. Oh, right. Right. I just saw the ATF. They were stolen, Sully. The Tommy guns were stolen. All the guns on this invoice. Hey, you're better than an aquarium. You know that? There's something happening with you every minute. What does it mean? It don't mean nothing. Some broad got killed. She's dead now, okay? You're going to the ticket office, pick up Randolph's tickets. This is the big one, laddie. Timmy, this other case. Bob, I got this piece of paper I found. Grofaz. Grofaz. What does it mean? I don't know what it means. I got this fellow on the roof, the Jewish house. I... What was he doing, shooting at him? I don't know. Well, then drop it, Bobby. For Christ's sake, I, I don't get it. Yeah, do you want to talk about dialogue? Man. So he obviously, he's a, he's a, like this famous playwright. Right. And uh, his, his plays start getting made into movies. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of the early, because well, all the William H. Macy ones, they're... Mm -hmm. House of Games and um, that has Joe Montana in it. Yeah, Joe Montana, and there's another one. He does um, Postman Always Rings Twice. Sorry, give this note. Are you writing me a thank you note? Huh? Is that what you were doing? Oh, look, live here, live with a guy. Took a chance, we didn't make it. That's an uh -huh. early Nicholson film. Yeah. He even writes uh, a little bit of the uh, Untouchables. Ah. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. He's part of that whole thing with the Palma. That's the Palma coming up. Right. Yeah. But Homicide. So Homicide. Homicide's the one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in the 90s, though. I thought that was earlier. But House of Games is in 87. So, yeah, in 87, he starts coming into his own with his own screenplay instead of doing stuff because he's writing stuff for for uh, Hill Street Blues yeah, and stuff like that. So House of Games is the one where I th I can, like even thinking back to Postman Always Rings Twice and even the verdict doesn't sound too mammity. No. You get no. into House of Games and he's like, this is my fucking story now. Right. Yeah, it's my story <laughs> and you're going to deliver my lines in a cadence that I right. determine. You know yep. what I mean? Anybody listen to any of the line readings in House of Games? Right. I want you to do me this favor. What's that? I want you to be my girlfriend for a while. Come in the game. You stand behind me. Watch me play. We get in a big hand. I, I go to go pee. You watch this guy and tell me, does he play with his gold ring? Then I know he's bluffing. I win the big hand, and I forget the 800 your friend owes. I don't know what it is he's trying to do, but maybe it's just a uniqueness or... But it's strange. Yeah. I, you know. It stands out more than any other dialogue you've heard up to that point. Because it doesn't match old-timey. No. It's, it's a weird kind of cadence that he specifically gives that they have to deliver the line in this exact way. Right. And with this tone and even with this punctuation sometimes, you know? Right. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. 
in the early 90s, although he doesn't have as much influence on the cadence, you can definitely hear his lines in Hoffa with Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito. Right. He helped write that. And you can hear his mammothness in the, mm-hmm. the lines that are given in the film, not necessarily the cadence. Right. But I don't yeah, think you can wrangle in an actor like, like Jack Nicholson. He's going right. to do it the way he wants to do it. Forget about the subpoena. Jimmy, the one thing you cannot do is square off with the White House. Square off with the White House? then they don't square off with me. You follow me? Don't tell me who I can square off with. Don't use words with me. Any man, any man fucks they with me. They have a subpoena. Gonna, and I say fuck the subpoena. But the, I think the, the best David Mamet <laughs> movie and the best oh. compromise where there oh, is man. the cadence, but it's not so obnoxious like in Homicide and House of Games right. is Glengarry Glen Ross, which is... Oh, man. Remember when we were... when we were selling Glen Ross farms? Didn't we sell a bunch of that? Yeah, they came in, you know. Oh, they fucked it up. They did. They killed a goose. They did. And now... Stuck with this. Stuck with this fucking shit. This shit. It's too... It is. You get a bad month, all of... You run this... They put you on this board. I... Some contest I, board. I... It's not right. It's not right to the customers. I know, it's... Wait, hey. An acting tour de force, right? <laughs> the, the cast on this thing is fucking ridiculous. You, yeah. You got... Yeah, Al Pacino, Kevin Spacey's first big movie role, uh, Alec Baldwin coming in, for, you know, yeah. on a on a part that was written for the movie, which was not in the play, right? Because I guess they needed to punch something up. So, but he steals the movie with, uh, yep. with that little whatever eight minute scene he has. Always be closing. Always be closing. A I D A. Attention, interest, decision, action. Attention. Do I have your attention? Interest, are you interested? I know you are, because it's fuck or walk. You close or you hit the bricks. Decision, have you made your decision for Christ? An action. Ed Harris is another one. Alan Arkin. Jack Lemmon is absolutely magnifique in this movie. Bruce, Harriet, what we have to do is admit to ourselves that we see that opportunity and take it, right? And that's it. Now, we just sit there. I got my pen out. Always be closing. Oh, God, that's what I've been saying the old ways, right? Convert that motherfucker, sell him, make him sign the check. Now, they got their money in government bonds. I said to myself, fuck it, let's go all the way, huh? The whole route. I take it and plat it out. Eight units, 82 grand, and I say to them, this is now. And Jonathan Price. And Jonathan Price, oh, this plays this such... Everyone. It's just like everyone was just like they looked at the script and they said, I'm going to do the best fucking work I think I've ever done in my life in this Mm -hmm. thing. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? Asshole. But yeah, so that movie comes in and it does have a mammothness to it. There's someone else behind the direction, though, that is able to tame it a bit, but still keep the uniqueness. It's yeah, it's so steeped in in the wording and the the play is famous enough that I think they want to deliver it and, you know, kind of pay homage to it. So it doesn't have that weird kind of thing going on. Right. But it. There's still that in it. Which is good because you don't want to take the cast that's in this film and give them a direction on how to deliver a line because you can't, you shouldn't give that to Jack Lemmon because the way he's going to. He's yeah. gonna say, "Hey, I gotta talk to my uh, yeah. secretary over here." Oh, Doris, or whatever. Yeah, right. Hello, this is Sheldon oh. Levine. 
Please listen closely. I only have a moment or so. The way he gives those lines is only something Jack Lemmon can do. Yeah, well, and again, Alan Arkin is so Alan Arkin-y in this, <laughs> with his nervousness and his trepidation. He's that Alan Arkin. I can't explain it, but he's so serious. Then he's doing that nail-biting thing, just yep. like, you know, that, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> But it's just one of those things that's the pinnacle. You know, Mamet goes on to do his own thing and everything. The Spanish Prisoner, I think, is probably one of the best that comes directly from him. Yeah. uh, That doesn't seem obnoxiously Mamet. (laughs) Right. That's Campbell Scott and Steve Martin, right? Steve Martin. Yeah. uh, Really brilliant performances by both of them. But he's definitely great with lines. I I wouldn't give it to him on him delivering them to you. Yeah. The way he wants them done, but if he gives his lines to someone else and they and other people direct the actors giving you those lines, they come out really, really well. Yeah, well, and I think he's famous for don't give me your actor bullshit, just read my lines. That's right. kind of his, he has this very gruff New York yeah. kind of like, uh, don't fuck around with my art, you right. know. And I think that's probably what attracts a lot of actors that want yeah. to do his stuff. Right, that want to do his stuff, yeah, because yeah. I, I think it repels stuff, some right. uh, other actors too. Oh yeah, too. sure. Yeah. Doesn't sit well with those Hollywood types, <laughs> right? But so so we're we're in the '90s now, so of course we're we're steeped. Well, I will come back again. What we started in the '60s with the one-liners with James Bond is now mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger has said, "Hmm, this is interesting." <laughs> yeah, right. And has right. made it as kind of his own. So well, those things are still that that reoccurring thing that happens where audiences still. I want to see Schwarzenegger at this time. He's got to say these kind of lines. He has to say, "I'll be back," it, right. which starts in Terminator, the original right. Terminator. I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be right back. I'll be back. I'm back. She'll be back. Stay here. I'll be back. I might be back. I'm back. I'm back. I'll be back. Ha! You did not gonna say that, did you? That's what you always say. I do. And then he carries that into like every goddamn movie up until last year. <laughs> right? So yeah, it almost becomes a joke. And and like we've mentioned before, he has a team of writers that are specifically there to write one liners in his mis- Dr. Freeze, Mr. Freeze, uh, Batman and Robin performance. <laughs> right. Stay cool, bird boy. It, it's that's how bad it's gotten. By I think that. they're brilliant. I think David Mamet <laughs> would look at that and go, "Yes, <laughs> yes, <perfect."> yes, <laughs> correct, right." Now get the fuck out of my room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing Mr. Freeze dialogue. Leave me alone right now. <laughs> <laughs> I will punch you in the face. I know jujitsu. I made red belt. I'd like to buy that. She's a friend of mine. Admire your taste. What? I'm sorry, what did you say? I said I admire your taste. Yeah, I heard what you said. I just don't know what it means. All right. What does it mean? Whatever you want it to mean. So as the 70s birthed out these filmmakers that we, we're, we've talked about and are huge, the 90s birthed out Tarantino. Yeah. Well, because well, what happens is, is because of the success of Spielberg and Lucas and these giant, giant films, right? Right. And then things like Die Hard and all that stuff, these they create this kind of like a blockbuster mentality. Right. Some of the more edgier stuff goes away. I mean, it's there, mm-hmm. but it's not quite as out there. And then, so what happens is, is, is in the 90s, independent film becomes the thing. 
Mm-hmm. Independent film kind of becomes uh, what's uh, in the way this the same way that the uh, 70s is like pushing the envelope and all that stuff. Independent film in the 90s is kind of reinventing what film is. And yeah, T- Quentin Tarantino is like behind all that. And we could say John Favreau too with Swingers. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to a certain extent, I would even I would go more for uh, Kevin Smith at this time. He's a really prominent voice in film at that time in the 90s. Right, right. What did you like better, Jedi or The Empire Strikes Back? Empire. Blasphemy. Empire had the better ending. I mean, Luke gets his hand cut off, finds out Vader's his father, uh, hand gets frozen, take away by Boba Fett. It ends on such a down note. I mean, that's what life is, a series of down endings. All, all Jedi had was a bunch of Muppets. Well, you got Linkletter, mm-hmm. who comes out at that time, and he's doing his own thing. Very, very artsy. Way yeah. off center artsy that kind of swings into regular filmmaking and then goes outside of it and comes back in. He's one of those guys that, that uh, comes in with, uh, that, well, his first movie, Slacker. And in that movie, you're like, what is going on? Are we just watching a bunch of random people doing stuff? Like, it, what's the point? But that's the whole deal, the, the, the mundaneness of life and stuff like that. So he's following, and it's very artsy and stuff. But then you get all the way up to stuff like uh, Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. And that's Linkletter taking what he saw Lucas do in American Graffiti and pouring it through his filter, through his timeline of life. And that's a very interesting perspective to watch another filmmaker take something that someone else has done. They were inspired by another filmmaker pouring it through their lens and how differently it comes out. Right. Yeah, right. My man, what has happened? Long time, no see. <laughs> That's right. What have you been up to? Same old shit, man. Yeah? Working for the city. Working man, huh? Been thinking about getting back in school, though, man. Back in JC or something like that? Yeah, man. I mean... That's where all the girls are, right? <laughs> but on the other hand, man, I just as soon keep working, keep a little change in my pocket. Yeah, wait. Rather than spend my time listening to some dipshit who doesn't know what the hell he's talking about anyway. I know what you're talking about. This is Steven Soderbergh, too. Oh, yeah, Steven Soderbergh in this time. Paul Thomas Anderson's coming in. Wes Anderson's coming in. All of these right. guys are coming in at this time and adopting their own visual style along with dialogue style right, right. that's going to make their movies stand out as unique. And even some of them have other movies ripping them off, trying to right. be like them, especially yeah. Tarantino. Especially Tarantino. Yeah. After after Pulp Fiction hits and, and is huge and wins the Oscars and all that stuff, right. there is so many... Uh, people probably forget this, but there are so many... Pulp oh, Fiction yeah. ripoffs after yeah. that. It was like an easy three-year just load of all of these films. That Because what happened is everyone was turning down Tarantino stuff, so he was having to do writing assignments for other films and even right. selling some of the scripts and what he was. And so... Yeah. The, well, let's just make it clear if people don't realize that... Um, True Romance is, is a Tarantino script. Mm. I'm still a mystery to you. But I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. See, if I ask if you want some dinner, and you grab the egg roll and start to try down, I said to myself, this motherfucker, he's carrying on like he ain't got a care in the world, and who knows? Maybe he don't. Maybe this fool's such a bad motherfucker. He don't got to worry about nothing. He just sit down, watch my motherfucking TV. See? And Natural Born Killers is a Tarantino script. Right. So tell me, Mickey, how can you look at an ordinary person, an innocent guy with kids, and then shoot him to death? I mean, how can you bring yourself to do that? Innocent? Who's innocent, Wayne? You innocent? I'm innocent. Yes, I am. I've murdered. Definitely. 
It's just murder, man. All God's creatures do it in some form or another. I mean, huh. you look in the forest. You got species killing other species, our species killing all species, including the forest, and we just call it industry, not murder. But I know a lot of people who uh, <clears throat> deserve to die. So that's Oliver Stone and uh, Tony Scott did True Romance. Oliver Stone did Natural Born Killers. Those are two relatively big, I mean, one's bigger than the other, but right. people might not know. Now, if you go back and watch those movies and you listen to the music yep. of the, the dialogue, you'll see, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah that's Quentin yep. Tarantino, 100%. Yep. What happens is, is Pulp Fiction comes out, huge, huge phenomenon. Yeah gigantic phenomenon and all of the studios that turned down that script all of a sudden think well we can find that in something else even though we didn't see it in that to begin with right and start hiring all these other people that are tarantino like probably even i would imagine hiring filmmakers saying be tarantino like right yeah yeah you know like there's isn't there like way of the way of the gun is way of one the gun and you yeah. have the uh, boondock saints Chris, yeah boondock saints and chris chris walken is in that one where the guys kidnap suicide and, kings and right. uh there's a ton of them there's tons and tons want some bacon no man i don't eat pork are you jewish no i ain't jewish i just don't dig on swine that's all why not pigs are filthy animals i don't eat filthy animals yeah, but bacon tastes good. Pork chops taste good. Hey, sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie, but I'd never know because I wouldn't eat the filthy motherfuckers. So, yeah, that, so everything gets inundated with this Tarantino-esque kind yeah. of quality because it's so unique and it has its own style and it does right. skirt on on things that you have seen in Hollywood before, but it has this bite to the dialogue that right. that this musically, as you used very brilliantly earlier about <laughs> how... The Coen's right. Yeah. Tarantino has his own little box of music. Musicality in his right. Yeah. R- yeah. W- w- yeah. He just he can take mundane topics and yes. have these people talking about this shit and elevate it in a way that makes it interesting and funny. Right. And with a lot of words involved. Right. Let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. It's for the birds. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Hey, look. I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. At this time, as we're saying, in the 90s, where it's Schwarzenegger films and Spielberg extravaganzas like Jurassic Park and, you know, Batman movies that are going off the rails and all of this crap is coming out, and then you have... This guy who's like, I'm going to embrace dialogue again. Yes, right. Effect. Wait, right. Because you, you got like, well, like you were saying, Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Clint Eastwood and all that stuff have made a, a meal ticket out of not saying a lot. Right. And kind of using attitude. Yes. And now right. he's going to, in action, in gritty action, right? So, yeah, he, wh- right. what Tarantino does is I'm going to take this gritty action and add a shitload of dialogue. Right. And make it clever as fuck. All right, before we start talking about stewardesses, let's get Beaumont out of the way first. Uh, you know, I think somebody already did. What? You ain't here? Here what? Somebody with a grudge blew Beaumont's brains out. Oh, shit. That shit rhymes. Blew Beaumont's brains out. 
and the way he he comments on the dialogue being said in his film and everything it's just it's a brilliantly done so then when you get to to pulp fiction and the way all of these characters have a unique way of talking but still in the voice of the central guy who's writing it for them mm-hmm. it still amazes me how you can hear him and all of the characters but they're still individual characters yeah. yes right yeah and that goes all the way up until now you know yeah no, yeah, totally. He's just, he's brilliant at that. You, you wouldn't think that a character like Christoph Waltz's character in, in Glorious Bastards yeah. and his brilliant delivery and the way he, he says, Gentlemen, I have no intention of killing Hitler and killing Goebbels and killing Goering and killing Bormann, not to mention winning the war single-handedly for the Allies, only later to find myself standing before a Jewish tribunal. If you want to win the war tonight, I have to make a deal. Like some of the lines he says, it's like poetry in the film. Yeah, right. And then you get to Brad Pitt's character and how he delivers lines and everything, but they're still coming from the same brain, but yeah. it, well, they're completely two different characters, right. but still really unique dialogue delivery. Tell me, Aldo, if I were sitting where you're sitting, would you show me mercy? Nope. What is that English expression about shoes and feet? Looks like the shoes on the other foot. Yeah, just thinking. So another one of the guys that comes out of this, though, that is one of my favorite filmmakers, and and not even though that he he does a lot of fascinating stuff, but he writes all of his own material, and a lot of his dialogue is I find really great, but not great in in showy great. Right. And that's Paul Thomas Anderson. You look at yeah. like Boogie Nights right. and some of the stuff that comes out of that. And that is definitely coming out of a 70s era yeah. of, of movies. It's a period piece in yeah, a way. It's yeah. a period piece, but he's also doing it as movie delivery. But not right. just movie delivery from that time of like exploitative films, but right. porn films of that time <laughs> in the way that they're, you know, they're delivering this campy dialogue and stuff like that. So John C. Riley can deliver lines like, Hey, did you ever see that movie Star Wars? Oh, about four times. People tell me I look like Han Solo. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <and laughs> it's the funniest goddamn thing ever. The confidence yeah. behind it. Right, you know? right. Yeah. And then you get all the way up to like There Will Be Blood and the way that you have Daniel Day Lewis taking over that and saying the way those lines are. The Phantom Thread or he had licorice mm-hmm. pizza and everything else. So so the way he's able to embrace different style of speak through all of these characters that inhabit his world, but still all of them seem unique and not a part of the same thing. Even, you know, you look at Punch Drunk Love yeah, and how that movie is so, I think, steeped in musical tone and right. the, the dialogue delivery matches it. Uh-huh. So the way Adam Sandler delivers his thing or the way- Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. Fuck, did you just say go fuck myself? Yes, I did. That wasn't good! You're dead! He's in that, and he's delivering this stuff, and he's another go-to guy for, back in the day, for Paul Thomas Paul Thomas Anderson, Anderson yeah. Right. And then you look at Wes Anderson, who comes out of that time, and how right. his line delivery is very much out of, it's out of French, New yeah. Wave, mm-hmm. and it's out of old Hollywood. Right. Are you trying to steal my woman? I beg your pardon. You heard me, Coltrane. Coltrane? Did you just call me Coltrane? No. You didn't? No. 
Okay. <clears throat> but if I did, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it, would you? You don't think so? No, I don't. Listen, Royal, if you think you can march... You want to talk some jive? I'll talk some jive. I'll talk some jive like you never heard. Oh, yeah? Right on! Sit down. And it's out of 70s films, and out of, right. it's coming out of everywhere, but it's so hyped up on this artistic, nuanced performance that mm -hmm. the way Gene Hackman in Royal Tenenbaums delivers yeah. lines. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you can't get that guy to buy into anything other than what he's going to do. He's like, I'm going right. to take your lines and I'm going right. to read them the way you, you know, right. so fuck you and your yeah. your little cutesy thing. But he still manages. But it works. It, it, he manages to box it into yep. his storytelling and it works beautifully. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing here? Uh, I need a favor. I want to spend some time with you and the children. Are you crazy? Well, wait a minute, damn it. Stop following me. Well, uh, I want my family back. Well, you can't have it. I'm sorry for you, but it's too late. What? Listen, baby, I'm dying. And that scene in particular is really interesting because it shows how insignificant words are to Royal. You know what I mean? He uses, he just throws this word out because he, he wants to get his way. It's not, it shouldn't be any consequence. And he doesn't like extreme emotion, whether it's anger or sadness. What'd they say? What's the prognosis? Take it easy, Ethel. Now, hold, hold on, baby. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Where's the doctor? No, 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 just wait a second now. Wait a second. Okay, listen. I'm not dying. But I need some time. A month or so, okay? I want, it, I want us to... to, to What's wrong with you? Damn. Ethel! Are you crazy? Ethel, baby, I am dying. Are you or aren't you? What? Dying? Yeah. No, I know. And, and, and for me, I mean, Royal Tannenbaum's is probably my favorite of his, but... Right. For, and I, this is not probably as common with most people. My second favorite is Bottle Rocket because it's so fucking bizarre. <laughs> right. And and the line delivery uh, uh, between uh, between those three main guys. Right. Uh, you know, the rich kid w whose brother's always beating him up and, and uh, uh, the two Wilson brothers. Yeah. God damn it! You're not paying attention if you're messing around with the gun. Now quit... I'm Anthony, just, just keep the gun on the table. Keep, look, I, I can't focus look, unless the gun, gun is on the table. Well, you just paid it. for it. Shut up, man. Shut up. I'm warning you now. Be quiet, please. It's true, Dignan. I paid for the gun. Say it again. Say it one more time. Say it again. Repeat what you just said. <laughs> I don't even know how to categorize what they're doing. Right. But they're doing it in this way. When you watch that film, you can kind of see, if you deconstruct it a bit, you can see some fandom in there for Cohen's. I can. Yeah. I can see yeah. a little bit of Cohen DNA in there of him. Yeah. Like, I'm a fan of, how can I put this through my filter right. and do it my way? But it's still right. dialogue about really weird, simple things uh -huh. that end up coming out the weird filter the way he delivers and it also you see his his love of like like old stop animation uh, films from the 60s and the way that is influenced weirdly into his films and then also french new wave and 70s yeah. ex exploitation all of that fits in visually in his film yeah. along with dialogue delivery. yeah it's very you know dialogue strong have you ever been questioned by the authorities yes on one occasion what, what? i was arrested and tortured by the rebel militia after the mm -hmm. desert uprising right well you know the drill then zip it 
Aaron Sorkin, yeah. Aaron that guy, Sorkin. Yeah. He comes out of plays. Yeah. In the TV it's and kinda, then film. Yeah. Right. And he has, like Mamet, but in a better way. He has yeah. a way that he writes a character that is so very direct. Right. And knows exactly what they want to say. They know each word <laughs> that. Yeah. Th- there's no hesitation. There's no filler words. There's right. there's nothing. You have to be. You have to qualify. Yes. To be a Sorkin actor, I yep. think. You know what I yep. mean? Because yep. it's so uh, fast, and and you can't trip up. Nope. It's kind of like. Uh, an, uh, you have to be an athlete, right. a vocal athlete, and you have to have a handful of them because they're delivering rhymes back and forth like right. without a beat in this very Howard Hawks fashion that we talked about. We, we made the comparison in the beginning when we started with Howard Hawks. Right. But it, there's like, oh, there's no room for pausing, you know, and, and he made famous the whole walk and talk thing, which yeah. is, I think, you know, that's a visual aspect, but it plays into the dialogue and because uh, right. it because it, it's kind of sets a pace. Yep. By them walking quickly together, that they have to talk together and deliver lines back and forth. CJ, this may be a good time to tell the president about Sam and the call girl. He knows? Yeah. Yes, I'm afraid I have that information now, and I'll be in to see you, my friend, very shortly. How the hell did I get into trouble? Today, all you had to do was get out of bed. And because of his fast dialogue, he can get a ton of exposition out that would probably fill about seven pages of script <laughs> in about right. a page and a half. <laughs> right, right. And, and I think that's why you have some directors get a hold of his material and do it well. Yeah. Did you know there are more people with genius IQs living in China than there are people of any kind living in the United States? That can't possibly be true. It is. What would account for that? Well, first, an awful lot of people live in China, but here's the question. How do you distinguish yourself in a population of people who all got 1,600 on their SATs? I didn't know they take SATs in China. They don't. I wasn't talking about China anymore. I was talking about me. You got a 1,600? Yes. I could sing in an acapella group, but I can't Does that sing. mean you actually got nothing wrong? I could row crew or invent a $25 PC. Or you get into a final club? Get into a final he even caters to some of the lines that go on to be classic. You know, yeah. You, you want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. From few right. good men and all that. Right. And then he goes into a lot of the the TV stuff, like he was a part of the whole uh, West Wing. And that definitely hones his style that goes back into movies. And then right. you get a brilliant director like David Fincher who takes some of his work and puts it on film and like The Social Network. And you yeah. see that hit this incredible dialogue oh, yeah. mixed with this immaculate filmmaking visual yeah visual and it just, yeah it's that that movie is an explosion of like amazing cinema right yeah mr zuckerberg do i have your full attention no do you think i deserve it what do you think i deserve your full attention i had to swear an oath before we began this deposition and i don't want to perjure myself so i have a legal obligation to say no okay no you don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. But we're also David Fincher hobnobbers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the pair of us. Yeah, all of these guys are being birthed from the different style of dialogue that come up through the the years and are still like some of the old guys are still operating i mean unfortunately we lost the pairing so far of cohen brothers they yeah. split and so that's a kind of a 
the big bummer. But at the, at the same time, you know, we got a, a good amount of output from them over the years. And yeah. They, they dabbled in a ton of different genres that you can kind of see them work in, in all kinds of different ways. Tarantino, you know, he's coming up on his 10th film, which he's saying is going to be his, his last, last film. Yeah. So, and then Sorkin is kind of just getting his strut. Right. You know, because he's starting to direct now. He's got two films under his belt. Yeah. If anyone's seen Molly's Game, I think that's the best of his directorial. That movie is just amazing in, in the dialogue delivery and visual style and stuff. Really good movie. Right. And then, you know, and Paul, Paul Anderson's still going. Link Letter's still going with with a lot of his films that he's doing. Anderson, Wes Anderson's still going. And then. Yeah, because otherwise, you know, we are in that weird period right now where it's kind of like in the 60s where every big Hollywood film is, is these like either biblical epics in the 60s and now it's all, you know, grand visual mass, like visual uh, epics now with the uh, comic book stuff and all that stuff. Right. These guys aren't being quite as expressed quite as much as they were, and the, and the up and comers are not getting the traction that say Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, all these guys got in the '90s. It's I think it's harder in today's right. uh, market because of the, of the flooding of the market with the streaming right. and all that stuff. But yeah, the brilliant part of that though is where long form storytelling starts to become streaming starts servicing right. long form storytelling. Right. Where those kind of guys can come to an arena and now have a huge like ballpark to play in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to where correct. you know Tar Tarantino can do the hateful eight. Right. So you taking in the red rocker hat. <laughs> you bet. You gonna wait around and watch it? Oh, you know I am. Come on. I wanna hear her neck snap in my own two ears. Get up, boy! You never wait to watch him hang? My bounties never hang. Cause I never bring him in alive. Never. Never ever. We talked about this in Chattanooga. Bringing desperate men in alive is a good way to get yourself dead. Get in there. Can't catch me sleeping if I don't close my eyes. I don't want to work that hard. No one said the job's supposed to be easy. No one said it's supposed to be that hard, neither. And he can have a... He has a three-hour movie right. that he can release in theaters, but say, this is not the whole thing. And then you see the whole thing unravel on, on, on Netflix, Netflix, and it's like four or five parts that, that open up to about four-and-a-half-hour movies. So. Right. I'm talking about, like, up-and-comers. You know what I oh, mean? Right. Like, the, the, the ones who are going to replace these guys. You right. know what I mean? Uh, there, there, there's It's harder to kind of find the film geniuses of this generation kind of thing because right. if they're, they're most of them are getting sucked into the Disney world you know what right. I mean whether yeah you know. yeah or they're just getting lost in in because all media yeah. all form of media entertainment whether it be movies or TV or podcasts or whatever it is is so inundated with material now right that right. things get lost like right. us <laughs> <laughs> yeah we yeah So, yeah, I think it, it, you know, it's not in the days where, like Spielberg, he sneaks onto the lot of Universal and yeah. gets his script to a filmmaker and becomes a star. That doesn't happen anymore. No. If that happened to these days, he'd be thrown out of the lot and say, <laughs> go make a movie on YouTube and let's see your experience. <laughs> right. Uh, but, well, I think what is cool, though, is we do have Netflix and the, and the guy who runs that place, uh, I, I can't think of his name, Ted something. Um <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, the guy who runs Netflix is pretty much like willing to take 
gambles on a lot of people. So right. and and he'll throw big names a lot of money, but he also fund a lot of uh, stuff that probably would have never have gotten funded by big Hollywood back in the day either. Right. So it's a two-way street. Except Canon. Oh, Canon. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I thought you're going to be a star. I thought you were saying Ken. I'm like, Ken who? <laughs> <laughs> he runs Tubi? Duh. <laughs> Duh, stupid. <laughs> Ken Tubi. <laughs> that's why it's called Tubi. <laughs> Jesus. It's like Ronald Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never even really thought about it. You're Tom right. Tom Netflix. Duh. Yeah, Tom Netflix. <laughs> Walt Disney Plus. <laughs> With his frozen head on display. When you wish upon a star. As we've said all of this, artists getting lost and everything, do you think just being good enough, just writing good enough stuff is eventually going to get you noticed, get you the big ticket to Hollywood? <laughs> well, I don't think that's ever been the case. I think there's always been, you know, you every anytime you hear somebody who's grounded <laughs> anyway talk about their Hollywood success or whatever, they always can attribute it to a lot of luck. Because mm -hmm. there are people who have no talent who have gotten super lucky and get carried all the way through and have big careers. <coughs> Diesel. <coughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, ble bless you. <laughs> bless you. <laughs> you know, and, and, and with the pot being like we were talking about, being so right. much bigger now and not confined to just Hollywood, because you can technically, you know, you and I could start making a, a, a movie right now with our iPhones because the right. cameras are such good quality. It's yeah. so, you know, it's kind of like what happened with Napster to to the music industry 20, you know, 15, 20 years ago, whatever that was, where it breaks the music system down to a certain point. You know, that hasn't quite happened to Hollywood yet, but right. uh, it, you, it has taken the teeth out of it. So, right. It's hard to say what's going to happen. I think, right. you know, you listen to a lot of podcasts about film, you know, w with people in the industry and, and they say this, you know, there, there's positives and negatives to what's going on. And I think I think a little more luck is needed now to be able to be seen and heard, you know. The only responsibility I have is to be true to my characters. And the dialogue just comes out of the character. I don't lead the characters. I let the characters lead me. Say there's the Coen Brothers 2 out there somewhere. Yeah. Right? Okay. But with so their own individual twists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying A the Coen Brothers, but yeah, mm -hmm. the, this generation's Coen Brothers, who right. are brilliant with dialogue and can tell a great story and work, can work in almost any genre possible. Do you think that if they are around and they get noticed by Hollywood, will Hollywood notice their uniqueness or will they say, hey, can you do the next Black Panther movie? <laughs> I, I, well, I think unfortunately well, that's where we're at right now is... Right. Yeah, I think kind of Hollywood has to go through this kind of crash and burn the way it did before. It, it, right. The way it's done the mul multiple times before, you know. Right. Uh, and hopefully th through the ashes comes this new wave of talent, you know, like right. we had in the late 60s, early 70s with like what we talked about, Coppola, Scorsese and, and all that you stuff. You got to burn the crops? 
Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The, what's the uh, burn the overgrowth, basically? Right. Yeah. I mean, but there's so there, you're never going to burn the overgrowth in today's market because it's you know, th yeah. th no matter what, there's just going to be tons of crap being put out. That's my worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's right. the problem too. I think in in answering some of my own question is that it's because it's such a flooded market and because we rely so much on the guys that we love so much like you know like right. we love kubrick or how we love fincher or how we love the coen brothers or all of these guys that we've mentioned tarantino all of these guys there's so much pressure put from us not necessarily that they have to feel the pressure they shouldn't they should do whatever they want and if they like what yeah. they do then good for them but right <laughs> is there so much emphasis that we're putting because we've loved everything that's come mostly before that mm -hmm. we're burning ourselves out because we expect so much from them that we go in yeah. with too high expectations expectations correct right and who can who can win in that situation right right it seems at this point that having a, a common love for the same thing is kind of probably disappearing right you so. know you're saying we're fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. The world is over. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow. And tomorrow and tomorrow. Creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. Because we're talking about the Coens and uh, what's is it Joel that's out on his own now, right? Yeah. And he just did the tragedy of Macbeth. Right. I being not educated in that thing, I struggle with the dialogue. I, I don't. Right. I, I have a hard time following the story of Shakespeare. But so right. that's something that's interesting to me too. Is is of all the storytelling in the world, Shakespeare comes out of the 1600s and has never changed. You know, his his written word has stayed his written word. People have right. tried to modernize it and all that stuff. Right. But ultimately, you have the tragedy of Macbeth done by Joel Cohen last year. And it's still true to the original writings of William right. Shakespeare, whether he wrote it or not, blah, blah, blah. That's all whatever. Right. Uh, not relevant. <laughs> right. I find it interesting that that one guy is the only guy through the last 400 years right. whose story is still maintained, unchanged, yep. right. not modernized. How did that happen? I'll tell you. <laughs> two words. Public domain. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? The copyright no, didn't no. exist in 1630? I, I, I think that... It, 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 well, okay. It's easy for any... Anyone coming out of serious theater or storytelling or something like that, if they want to make a film that they know has a brand name uh -huh. that will grab someone's attention, they can slap Hamlet on something or they can slap a William Shakespeare play on it, yeah. and they know that they will get eyes on it somehow. And all they have to do is tweak it enough to make it stand out that maybe become a calling card. But the trap that I think for anyone who wants to be unique in dialogue is when you fall into the Shakespeare thing. Yeah. It is that you, if you're going to be honor Shakespeare, you have to, you're already giving into a, a, a vocabulary. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. And you're just delivering visual to that 
You know, you can hire actors to say those lines a certain way, but if you stray too far outside of it, the people you're trying to attract are going to be like, oh, well, they're not even staying close. That's too far. Yeah. So. Yeah. So why does it, why do people, yeah, I guess because you said it's a, it's a, it's a known quantity. It's a known quality quantity and it's, it, and people, there are huge fans of that's a that's a big theater. it's considered some of the best writing of all time right right yeah right. right and i guess that's why it stuck out versus the other playwrights of his time period i guess you know right i, th- I just find it interesting since we're talking about it that the cohen brothers split up yeah and the one cohen that's left that's still doing movies chooses to do something that could neuter the dialogue of a brilliant di- which makes me wonder is he the one that comes up with more story and the other brother comes up with more dialogue? Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? It's interesting yeah. that he's neutering his own style. His own style. Right, right. They're known for their unique right. deliver dialogue and delivery, and they're taking something that cannot be changed. It's almost, it ha- it's, it's so, it's so on the nose, that point, that it has to right. be on purpose. Right. Like, the first movie I'm going to do without my brother right. is something that has to be safe it's safe and i guess safe but also yeah oh yeah i guess yeah i guess safe is the word that's the first that when i heard he was doing it and and the other brother wasn't doing it i'm like well that's a safe pick yeah because you can't you can't uh, you can't change the dialogue yeah and if you do like i said you get like what what's the point of going to shakespeare if you're going to change it yeah <laughs> you know what i mean right of all men else i have avoided thee but get thee back my soul is too much charged with blood of thine already i have no words my voice is in my sword let fall thy blade on vulnerable crest i bear a charmed life which must not yield to one a woman born despair that charm no, I, but then just on the topic of Shakespeare itself, and we're talking about dialogue and, and why a time, uh, we're, we're talking about a time in this, you know, Engl- the language, English language is constantly evolving. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you go past William Shakespeare, which is, like I said, the early 1600s, and uh, into the 1500s is like the time of Henry VIII, which is, you know, pretty predominant period in English history. Once you go beyond that, and you you're a fly on the wall during the War of the Roses, these people are talking, and you're you're you as a modern you know American are sitting there going, what 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 are, they, what are these people talking about? Which is are they you know, mad? <laughs> their voices are raised. I think they're mad. <laughs> There's a you know. It's like walk, watching Peaky Blinders sometimes. It's like in our first episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> It's like in our episode, Boo, when I talk about the witch and putting on um, the subtitles, thinking it's going to help me. It doesn't. I don't understand it any better because I'm reading the dialect (laughs) of the 16th century or the 1600s, 17th century. No, I just think it's interesting that for whatever reason, because William Shakespeare is considered the best writer of all times, you know, I can't relate to that because I can't follow what he's saying. So maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. But... um, that it becomes the stalwart of theater in general and because of, it becomes the thing in theater it becomes the thing in in movies too so to a certain degree like the the thing to look up to right like Laurence Olivier and King Lear all that kind of stuff right uh, to be or not to be 
That is the question. And I am a fan of Shakespeare and everything, and that's why it's it has to be, in my opinion, it has to be if you're going to do Shakespeare. You can't change the dialect, so all you can tamper with is visual style yeah. and performance of, delivery of yeah. dialogue. And so, you know, you have people like Kenneth Branagh who does yeah. it, and he did, you know, great things. But he, when he did Hamlet, he did the full text, which had never been done before at that time. Right. And he did it in a 70-millimeter, beautiful presentation. Everything is very Hollywoody, glammy in it, the way he made everything look. And it's a pretty film. Right. But it's the same dialogue I've heard in every other Hamlet film. Yeah. And everything. And so all he can change is delivery. Right. And it's the same when Mel Gibson did Hamlet back right. in the early 90s. Right. Good performance. He did a really good job. But nothing really was skewed except performance. How they, how much more anger they put <laughs> on a certain dialogue. The look is completely different, too. Right. Like uh, the Mel Gibson's version is very grungy, yeah. almost Dark Ages kind of, what we perceive yeah. the Dark Ages of, to be. Right. And, Visual. and Visually. And then his is very, almost more of a renaissance-y looking. Right. Uh, Kenneth Branagh's is more of a very clean and mm -hmm. uh, developed, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's that my whole point of saying all this. Yeah, is right. All you change is, is the way it looks, right? Yeah. yeah. Sure, also make no noise in the streets. We will rather sleep than talk. You speak like an ancient and the most quiet watchman. For I cannot see how sleeping should offend. Well, there you go, folks. A lot of dialogue on dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you <laughs> get the skinny on what we're saying. And may the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed it. If yeah. you want to reach out to our uh, social medias and such. Yeah, go ahead and do that. Feel free to do that. And uh, until next time. Uh, we'll be closing out this dialogue with this button pushing of the dialogue button. Mm, okay. Dialogue. Talking about it. Talking about dialogue. Do it. Talking about touching the button. Okay, here you it is. You shall do it. Shalleth doeth. Art thou click? <laughs> <laughs>